Today's episode is brought to you by Reef Builders, winner of Best of Hows, five years running. Reef Builders is a Tempe, Arizona-based, full-service design-build construction company. What's a design-build company? It means you deal with one company for everything. Reef Builders is able to take your vision and bring it to life by drawing your plans, producing photorealistic, high-resolution 3D renderings of your kitchen, baths, and more, helping you design and pick your finishes, and finally, executing that vision. With their years of building experience and a superior client experience, using tools such as online project management software through their client portal that allows you to see your renovation in real time. Whether you're in town, on vacation, or living in another state, you have access to job progress photos, your build schedule, financials, and much more anywhere in the world. So if you're looking for a complete bath or kitchen renovation, a complete home renovation, a custom home designed and built, or a boutique commercial project built out, Reef Builders can deliver it. Reef Builders. Your vision, their experience delivered. All right, welcome back, everybody, to uh, the Make the Difference podcast. Uh, today we have uh, a couple gentlemen in here with Brandon and myself. Um, to uh, talk today about uh, an endeavor that actually the three of us had been involved in or have been involved in for, I don't know, the last seven or eight years now. Uh, it seems like it's just gone overnight. But, uh, yeah, so um, so our guests today are uh, uh, John Shoemaker and Mike Perry. Uh, they are my, my partners in crime uh, in the Arizona Interscholastic Cycling League. And so uh, we are here to today to uh, to talk a little bit. Uh, I, w- I want to hear both of their stories, really, and or I, I think I think our listeners actually want to hear both of their stories because it's pretty interesting. And then we'll get into kind of the development of uh, the Arizona Interscholastic Cycling League and and us getting into a youth development program that really uh, none of the three of us had any experience in, and uh, we've been uh, figuring our way through the whole time, and and uh, much to uh, well, much to our anticipated surprise, I'll put it that way, is uh, things are going pretty doggone well. So, uh, Brandon, what do you got? I'd venture to say that between the three of you, a crime has never been committed. <laughs> That's just a guess. No, between the two of us. Yeah, and the and the uh, and the uh, other most important thing is Chris said we could have them on because somehow I would get pivot to be able to develop the enduro version of a mountain bike that I can purchase again. Yeah, I'm pretty certain they've got all kinds of bikes that you could uh, uh, get. Um, we can make that happen. So, um, so let's kind of start out. Our, our normal format, fellas, is to dive in, and uh, I'd like to hear just your background and what what you, who you are, and what what made you uh, uh, into the people you are today, and and then we can kind of kind of work on what we're what we've got going on for the last decade or so. So. I'm going to turn it over, John or Mike. I'll let either one of you guys go first. All right. So, uh, John Shoemaker. Um, boy, how far back do you want to go? Well, you get, let's go to the beginning, because I because uh, uh, um, yeah, you you should at least start in Chicago. Somebody said we were talking about bikes today, right? Yeah, <laughs> we're, we'll get there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Chicago. Uh, got into BMX well shoot I mean just like all of us have been riding bikes since I was a little kid was fortunate enough to grow up with this huge field behind the house and 
uh, we that's what we did every single day with every single free minute was ride bikes in that field and jump and everything else. So um, uh, whatever good kids should do. Yeah, that's been a big part of uh, of my upbringing forever. And um, discovered BMX. <coughs> excuse me. Discovered BMX maybe uh, eight years old or so, shortly before we moved to Arizona. So we moved to Arizona when I was 10 and did uh, a handful of BMX races prior to coming out to Arizona. So, so are you like in the city? No, I'm a so, suburban so, kid. Okay, because yeah. when I picture Chicago, I picture the Blues Brothers, and I picture, you know, uh, that that scene. So, but you, so you're on the suburbs? Yeah, northwest of Chicago. Okay. Um, it's funny you mentioned Blues Brothers because we actually got to see them film a portion of that. That's it, pretty cool. It came through uh, the little town that my dad had a business in. So they were doing that scene where all the, all the cop cars shoot off the overpass and stack up. <laughs> it's an outstanding and, scene. Um, yeah, so we get to see some of that. So that was... Uh, interesting. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so we were suburbanite kids. Um, moved to Arizona. Um, interesting story. We had this huge blizzard in '79, and as kids, that's how we made money was shoveling snow. And so um, we were doing really well that year, but uh, we're pretty sick of it. And um, my dad, we had visited Phoenix and Arizona quite a few times, and had some friends out here. And uh, my dad came out as we we're shoveling snow uh, and said, "Hey, what do you guys think about moving to Phoenix?" And my brother and I said, "Yeah, sign us up. Uh, <laughs> we're we're <in>. out." <laughs> yep. So um, yeah, so we didn't do another winter there. Um, much to their credit, man, they were in their early 30s, packed us up, and drug the whole family, closed a business, and started everything up again here in Phoenix. What was your dad's business that you just closed the doors and go? Appliance, um, appliance sales and repair. So. Um, so that's a that's a big thing to get started. I mean, you know, figure out a new route. And he didn't get into sales at all. He just went in. Yeah, like he had repair. no connections here, right? Yeah, no, no, no connections here whatsoever. Uh, missed the Yellow Page ads for those of you that uh, <laughs> know what Yellow Pages are. are. <laughs> um, that's how you used to advertise is the Yellow Pages. So missed the deadline for that when we came out. So so the startup was relatively slow. But, Getting the uh, penny saver. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, but, you know, they gutted it out, and we, you know, we lived without for a lot. I mean, we had a, you know, they built, they bought a sweet house in North Phoenix um, right on the mountain preserve, so uh, was able to continue kind of that whole bike thing. So that was the only house you guys had here, John? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, huh. that's where I grew up, um, kind of just, just south of Moon Valley there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, moved here, jumped right back into the BMX scene, which was super fortunate because it, it, you know, was a built-in friend group. And, um, you know, as a really, really nerdy kid from the Midwest, coming out here, everything was different. You know, the kids were way more advanced uh, sexually and, and everything else. And Socially, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was pretty blown away. And, um, <laughs> luckily, academically, they were uh, a little bit behind where they were in the Midwest. I think we're 49th in the Go country. Go Arizona. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that part was easy, and I was able to focus on kind of building a social life and building a friend group and everything else. Team sports uh, had been a big thing back in the Midwest, and I was deeply involved in baseball and football and everything else and kind of jumped into that a little bit, started sixth grade here, but uh, gravitated more toward the bikes. And um, so started racing BMX again. And So what BMX tracks were open? Uh, PXA was on the west side. Um, my dad actually helped build Black Mountain. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, which is still existing today. Yeah, right. Chandler. Um, I remember travel, Chandler. Yeah, we used to travel to Chino Valley, Prescott Valley. There were two tracks there. So we would travel the state quite a bit. 
Um, I can't remember doing any in Southern Arizona, but pretty much everything around the Valley and then uh, Northern Arizona as well. Right, right. So, um, so we, yeah, jumped deep into that, um, started racing for Swiss American, actually started racing for a little shop called Bicycle Peddler on 19th and T-Bird, but uh, started racing for Swiss American once uh, my dad and Zeno built a, built a relationship together. So um, deep into the BMX scene and that kind of kept me out of trouble. Uh, really kept me out of drugs and everything else because that was those were the friends that accepted me were all the stoners in grade school uh, <laughs> but I they're never, very welcoming yeah but i never went that way because uh, <laughs> i always wanted to be fast on the bike and so that kept me kind of kept me straight uh kept me on the straight and narrow Not a lot's changed. yeah yeah <laughs> so um so that was you know the, the bike's been my foundation i think until girls in cars took over in high school um and i you know jumped away from that for a while and uh, re kind of revisited it when uh, when I was a young adult, you know, started losing. Uh, I didn't have any fitness, you know. I was skating a yeah. lot. I was skateboarding a lot. Yeah. So That's, you were big into skating. So yeah, what what, so that, what was that all about? So um, just kind of the fin- friend group I fell into uh, were a bunch of skaters in high school, and uh, and it was just a it was a blast, you know, and, and back then you had to earn it, man. You had to go find, I, I wasn't big on street skating. I don't think my feet moved that fast. So, um, so I got into pool skating and, and concrete. And, uh, so you had to earn that, man. Yeah. There's not a lot of pools you know, open, huh? Back when there was a newspaper, you know, back again, uh, for those of you young folks, um, back when there was a newspaper, they used to list all the HUD homes for sale in the newspaper. Well, if it was a HUD home and it had a pool that was listed, and if it was a HUD home and it had a pool, it had to be drained. So it was like a list of all the empty pools in the city. And so we would just go drive the alleys, um, spot these pools, and then, you know, bring a bunch of old carpet and buckets. We'd clean them out, and then we'd, and then we'd skate them. So that's kind of what kept me active, certainly, in, as a young adult. Uh, so funny, because I bought a house, I don't know, it was like three years ago, and I turned it into a rental. It had a pool, and I was going to do anything to the pool. Well, one day I come back, and I'm like, did somebody, I'm like, did somebody come over and drain the pool? And I'm like, what the hell? So I'm looking around and like nothing happens. And then I come back one day and I pull up and just all these kids do just bail out of the backyard because they're, because they're, they were riding in the pool. They cleaned it out and they cleaned it up and they kept it clean the whole time. I'm like, dude, I didn't even realize kids do that still, but that's funny. That was what, 30 years ago. So that would have been 84. Five? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so so they literally did that like last year or like two years ago at this house. I'm like, well, at least they cleaned the pool out and they and they would clean it every time they were there. Yeah, it was hilarious. So that was a big deal for us, right? So we never trashed the houses. Um, when the cops came, we never ran from the cops because we went. I mean, yes, we were uh, trespassing, like you were saying about people breaking laws. I might have done a few, but. Uh, <laughs> But we never we never damaged anything. You know, when that pool is empty like that in the middle of the summer, the the plaster needs to be redone anyway. So what we were doing was no worse than just leaving that pool empty. Community service. And we actually cleaned it. Yeah. And so. Uh, and the cops didn't probably hassle you other than to say, "Hey, no, you guys got to go." Yeah. And in fact, they were super cool. Most of them would just say, "Hey, we understand that looks like a blast, but you know, we have to kick you out of here." And, and we were like, "Yeah, okay, yeah. cool." So. Um, we just learned early on that we just it's not worth running because sure. we're really not doing a tremendous amount of damage. So, yeah, so the skating thing um, was my big deal, you know, for, for years, kind of all through high school and then after high school as well. 
Uh, and then I just started getting into the working world. I worked for my dad since I was 13 years old running a, an appliance business for him. So I'd leave high school, walk across the street to 19th and T-Bird and, and take over his shop so that he could go run calls. So where was his shop? Was it uh, was it by the, the pool pump place or uh, or literally on the corner? No, it was literally on the corner. There was a Texaco there. Yep. There was a Zia Records there. So uh-huh. those were kind of all my buddies at Zia Records. I was like two doors down. Okay. Um, so it was right there on that southeast corner of T-Bird and 19th Avenue. Got it. Uh, so it was easy to get to from school. Uh, so anyways, yeah, I worked for him um, until uh, after high school and then... Uh, transitioned into uh actually moved to san diego for a short spell uh and got into the pool industry learned a bunch about building pools everything from uh excavation to tile and everything finishing and everything else so um kind of jumped into the pool industry was really fortunate to have a, a good friend whose dad ran one of the big pool outfits out in san diego so um did that for a while and then came back and started a pool service and repair business um and you know, so everything kind of gravitated around pools there for quite a while. Yeah, right. Um, ended up running a, a little pool store, and um, it was right next to a, I think it was Abco then, Alpha mm-hmm. Beta maybe even. But uh, Abco. Yeah, so I, I was literally sitting uh, for you know eight ten hours a day, five days a week or six days a week, and started to you know put on the LBs. Here I am, like 19, 20 years old, and starting to uh, put on the LBs, and I thought, all right, I can't go down this road. And fortunately for me, a bike shop was moving in like two doors down. And so um, I was kind of watching them build it out. And as they started getting closer to being built out, I walked over and said, hey, man, do you guys have any used bikes? And they said, well, not really, but we will soon, you know, once we get the doors open. So I said, well, keep an eye open. I told them, you know, who I was. And and then Alan Brown said, hey, why don't you just come over when you're done over there? We have boxes and boxes and boxes of bikes that need to be built. We'll teach you how to build bikes. And um, you can earn your bike when we find it. So, that's awesome. Yeah, super, that's really yeah, cool. Super cool. Al so, Brown's a great dude. Yes, Yeah. So we jumped. So I kind of jumped into the bike industry. And those were some real good times, man. Some salad days for me because I'd show up over there. You know, we'd bust open the beers lock the doors, and then we'd solve the world's problems and build bikes till 2 in the morning sometimes. Um, so, uh, yeah, kind of jumped deeply into the bike industry, and, you know, those guys were super cool. They found a great bike for me, a used bike, and, and so I started riding. They would actually loan me bikes even before that. My first real ride was at South Mountain, um, Desert Classic, and then the Helipad, and um, literally got blown out of the water by my buddy who's still a good friend of mine his name's andy um he had just moved down from Vale to phoenix and um so they the shop guys are like hey we got this super cool dude we're gonna go ride with and i just got smashed but i did have some bike handling skills because of the bmx so um they certainly rode away from me on the uphills but i was able to keep them inside on the downhills and um that's kind of been my game really for the lifetime of me racing bikes um so uh, yeah that that isn't a hundred percent accurate but we'll 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 give him it so uh have been in and out of the bike industry pretty much ever since um was actually going to flight school the the goal was to be a pilot um and then just realized that that wasn't it just wasn't going to fit my lifestyle uh entirely well, so, you were a private pilot, though, yeah, right? Yeah, and I am. You know, I am a private pilot. Uh, so, but decided not to go the commercial airline route, and the fire department was 
uh, really fit my personality. And I was going to school for business management because that was kind of what they were looking for for pilots is eventual managers, you know, for the company. So uh, so was going to school for business management. And then uh, my buddy Troy Hill was trying to get on the fire department. He started telling me about all the benefits of it. And a lot of it was pretty hard to believe, quite honestly, because I was going to school for business and I was learning all these things about how businesses operate. And, um, you know, Chief Brunacini <laughs> built the Phoenix Fire Department to be uh, very much like a really well-run business, but a family as well. And, and so all that stuff really started to appeal to me and I started to shift my focus over to the fire department. Um, at the same time, I was, you know, racing bikes and, and riding and had transitioned to working at the shop full time. So um, it just was a kind of deep dive into the bike industry and then starting to focus on the uh, on the fire department as an ultimate goal, as a, as a career more than a job. Yeah. So, well, that's where you and I met is uh, yeah. where you were trying to get hired. Yeah. And that was what? 98, 99, something 90, like that? Yeah, probably 97, 98. Yeah, yeah. that sounds about right. So yeah. I did a few years out at the Boulders and Carefree, running their outdoor recreation program, started a climbing program out there. Um, had done a little time climbing with a good buddy of mine named Rick Booker that you guys have right. on the podcast. Yeah. Um, He's on here because of you. Yep, yep. So um, so Rick and I were climbing together. Uh, so I started, yeah, started that climbing program at the Boulders. How old were you? uh 22 okay yeah yep so um so that was a, again an awesome job i mean a really really amazing facility and i mean i was taking folks for hikes mountain bike rides and rock climbs that was my and living. going to school same time and going to school yeah. what school were you going to uh shoot at that point it was like pvcc or gotcha. something yeah gotcha. yep not uh, the harvard of the south no no, okay. no just checking no that stuff's all way too advanced for me <laughs> kind of hard to get in there yeah um, so yeah, so then I jumped into the fire department and, and again, I've been, you know, now 21 years of doing that. And, um, up until the last five years or so, pretty actively racing mountain bikes. Uh, then not, I dabbled on the road a little bit in crits, but, uh, uh yeah, the road is not my scene. So that's your personality. Yeah, no, definitely not my personality. <laughs> yeah, it's a different group. So um, I hope that's a nutshell. I mean, I, I don't know. No, I, yeah, I think it's good. I mean, I think it what it's what it, 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 it's what got you here. We, I, but yeah, we. I think there's more there. How about some adversity in that? Like in those years, it kind of shaped you. Coaches, parents, stuff like that. Like, gotta be a little bit in there, right? Well, Cause, so well, because because those of you who don't know, Johnny's strong work ethic. Like work, 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 work. Like not afraid to work, whether it be like with his hands or, or something else. And whether it's for free or for pay, like you're always willing to work. That's so. news to Mike and I. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I burned out on it. So I, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I have been, I've been working, like I said, for my dad since I was 13. Um, worked for some really, really great uh, managers, leaders, including Mike Barrow from Barrow's Pizza. Okay. And, you know, I delivered pizzas for those guys. My, buddy, my brother was, was best friends with Bruce Barrow, which was one of the sons, and okay. now he's running a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah. So Mike was a great leader, really cared about his employees, worked super hard, was a, you know, a good guy to look up to. My dad busted his ass his whole life, you know, um, so he was also uh, a great guy, super level-headed. Um, so those were, those were a couple guys that certainly influenced uh, me. Uh, my buddy's dad, actually, who was running the pool company, was amazing manager. Took really great care of his employees. Um, so all those things kind of, kind of pushed me in the right direction as far as eventually, you know, being a leader on the fire department or at least uh, 
paid to be a leader. Yeah, well, and then, like, you got into the fire service so young that you really didn't have time to play around with other shit. You're like, oh, yeah, this this looks pretty cool or whatever else, and then right there. Yeah, so, and I was was not super young. I mean, I was 29 when I got hired. Right. Um, So I had a little bit of management experience running the pool store and, um, you know, running. We were running, I mean, at 19, I was running crews, hand-digging pools in San Diego. So, um uh, yeah, so talk about hard work. I mean, that was For sure, that dude. was legit. Yeah, um, all day long. Yeah, and if you know, if, you know, two nineteen-year-old kids, if we're not working, the crew's not going to work. So, yeah. so we're just busting it with them, uh, and it was awesome, man. I mean, nineteen years old, running dump trucks and jackhammers and yeah. heavy equipment and everything. Else. Gas so tanks for days, yeah. fucking work oh, all day, yeah. go out at night, sleep yeah. four hours, oh, go back was, and go hit it again. Yeah, it was good living. Yeah, yeah for I sure. think we ate like six times a day. You know, <laughs> we were burning so many calories working. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so I, I hope that I hope how'd that the flight stuff that. come into play? Um, when I was working at the bike shop, uh, everybody was talking about this pilot guy. Oh man, you got to meet this pilot guy. You got to meet this pilot guy. He's so freaking fast and strong. And so, um, so sure enough, he comes in and and you know I was I was riding. I'm a single guy. I'm yeah. like, Hey man, you want to do some rides? And so I started chasing this guy around. And uh, yeah, he was strong and fast. And um, he wasn't that fast downhill though. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> So anyhow, uh, he and I started hanging out a bunch. He was a commercial pilot for American Airlines, um, has since retired. I think he's in Costa Rica or something. Yeah. Um, super good dude. So anyways, uh, that's how the pilot thing kind of came okay. around. Um, and I kind of thought, man, what a great life, man. You're, you're flying in the blue skies. For sure. Yeah, sometimes you're having to punch through the clouds, but yeah. you're always up in the blue skies once you're in, you know, at your cruise altitude. So You still fly now? Because this is the first I'm hearing of this because I've never... No, I never don't. I've got a good buddy that um, is a captain up in Prescott for the fire department. Gotcha. And uh, he has a couple planes, so I'll go out with him every now and again. Yeah. I hope to do that a little more, but when the... Uh, so I've got, I've got twin girls. Um, yeah. yeah. They're 20 <laughs> now. But when they were kids, I thought that was a little bit of a selfish pursuit because sure. uh, those things do hit the ground every oh, yeah. now and again, and yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to leave them. Sketchy. Yeah. So. Um, I think I'm gonna fuck this story up when I, when I tell, but I know it kind of plays with that John being fast downhill. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'll pass. The, for, for those of you that don't know, one of our mics broke, so. Chris and I are sharing a mic today, so we're passing it back and forth. Hey, dude, we're transparent here, bro. We're not trying to hide anything. It wasn't Brian Hayden's fault, I promise. Yeah, it was his fault. So I think it was, if, if I remember the story right, because you didn't tell it to me, somebody else did. Um, first enduro race in Prescott? It was the first enduro that Prescott, yeah, the MBAA did. Yeah, they did. Prescott, yeah. You're, you're lined up, getting ready to hit the first, first downhill? Yes, and some young, some some young pro, which not young young pro, yeah, yeah. So so some pro comes comes barreling to the front, get out of my way, dude, blah blah blah, yada yada yada. And how's the story go from here? Because I'm gonna screw it up. So there was some shit talking for sure, and and not from my side. It's really not my style. Yeah, Um, I tend to unless you know somebody, then you're talking about shit. Yeah, for for sure. sure. But uh, yeah, there was some shit talking going on, and and one of my buddies from Prescott kind of called these guys out because it was a handful of guys that. You know, had the full bro kits, and oh, yeah. they were pushing their way to the front. And um, and the way that it was so, um, it was just such a new thing that the guy who was running, it's like, hey, you know, if you think you're fast, come to the front. And so these guys, you know, were talking about the Enduro World Series and whatever. They, they were, yeah. Yeah, they were lifting a lot. You're impressed, guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so they come pushing their way to the front. And um, so I go, hey, man, I think they want me to go first. And that's exactly what my buddy who was running it said. And he looks at me, and I'm on a hardtail bike, and, and I'm 
You shouldn't be doing an enduro downhill on a hardtail bike. So I'm pretty unassuming, <laughs> you know, and, and the guy looks at me, he looks me up and down. He's like, so, uh, he said, you better not beat me on that bike. Yeah. And, uh, what the fuck else did he say? Pardon my effort. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was interesting. He, like said, he said a couple things that were uh, very motivational to me. <laughs> <laughs> Your response back was awesome, yeah. though. If I, yeah. I, I, said, I said, look, dude, if, I, if you catch me and I get in your way, trust me, I'll get out of your way and I'll be the first to buy you a beer at the end of this thing. If you beat me. Yeah, if yeah. you beat me. If yeah. you beat me. And so, um, so that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. You beat him. Yeah, <laughs> I beat him. So, um, I think so, like one of the first times I ever like got to know John's, I roved into a station. I think I was on his on his truck, and they used to go. His crew they used to go work out, and they'd go run run a couple laps around the station or whatever. And I'm a bigger guy, but I'm fast, and like like like, like people look at on my feet, um, like people look at me yeah, like they don't think so. So I was like, I, John and I were up front, and I was pushing a little bit, and then and then we finished, and and uh, he said something like, you. You're pretty fast for a big guy, but you know I wasn't gonna let you beat me at my station, right? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did. I didn't say anything back after that. So I was yeah. pretty impressed. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Dopey. I had to work pretty hard there. Yeah, right. Well, um, so yeah, so you left a couple details out here. So you do have a family, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they, and, and they're an important part. And, Absolutely. And uh, and so you do. You've got twin girls yep. that are college age now, yep. right? Yep. Uh, and I, I remember walking into your house when they're sitting in their high chairs eating, <laughs> eating bananas or whatever, whatever uh, at the time. And so that that's been it's been quite a while. But um, um, yeah. So uh, to this point. Well, we're both to the point now where we're looking at the very end of our careers, right? We can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel, so it's kind of an interesting place to be and an interesting progression to, to take. So I certainly figured we would get deeper into that kind of as we talked about the motivation oh, yeah. to start the league. You know, uh -huh. the family's a big part of it. But yeah, yeah. Um, got married at 25. Uh, my wife's a big part of why I'm on the fire department because I'm uh, not very well-spoken and certainly uh, <laughs> cannot manage myself well in front of a group. I'm not great at telling you how great I am uh, because I'm not. So anyhow, she was, she was very good at dragging stuff. She out was, a, she's a, she's in a, she's a, she's in marketing. Yes, she knew yeah. how to say, she knew to help, yeah. how to help yeah. you sell yourself. So, um, so she was pretty instrumental in, in helping me prep for uh, the fire department interviews. I could do okay in the written test. I could do well in the physical agility stuff, but it was kind of the hurdle was always the, the, the interview. And I think that's true for most folks that get on the fire department. And so she was, yeah, super instrumental and in kind of helped helping me prep for that as as well as you and candace and i mean i, I yeah I, I could never name all the folks that yeah none of us did it by ourselves yeah, yeah for sure so um yeah so that's uh again a big part of it um super supportive and and certainly um one of the reasons i think we started the league was was my kids your kids yeah, you know? yeah. and, and uh, obviously our passion for this sport yeah but your kids actually raced forever. yeah that's true <laughs> yes yep Right on. All right. Well, uh, cool. Then we can we can definitely get into into more of that stuff. So, uh, Mike, what do you? Uh, let's talk about. You. Let's 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 get into your story here. My story. Yeah. All right. I am originally from Seattle, so uh, born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I grew up a traditional sports person. So, I was aside from a kid just rode riding a bike for transportation. 
I was your ball and stick kind of guy. I was playing football, basketball, baseball, depending upon what the season was. And um, that was my sport all along, all the way through, you know, from, I don't know, peewee to high school to college was, I was a football player. Um, and but then found the love for my bike again when I was, uh, I guess, early in my freshman year when I tore my ACL. Uh, got on the bike for rehab and, um, you know, continued on playing football for a little bit after that. But that really brought me back into riding my bike again and saying, hey, this is a lot of fun. And uh, it was right around that time where mountain biking was starting to pick up, too. So it wasn't just my little, you know, Schwinn Stingray that I grew up riding on. But now it was, you know, hey, these bikes are kind of fun. You can go out and get dirty. Um, you ride a mountain bike. I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the road. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's great for fitness, but I love the mountain biking. For me, it's just, it feels more athletic. It feels like you're getting out and seeing nature. It's, um, you know seeing way more desert than you can hike in but you're going slower than if you were on a moto the people so, are a lot nicer <laughs> usually <laughs> um can we talk about the difference between mountain bikers and road bikers because people well, yeah are, if we want to get I, out I, on the I, table I, we can i don't think people are going to really fully understand that <laughs> so I, I think the best way to kind of summarize it is uh when when you're on a mountain bike and you're on a trail and you flat every single person on a mountain bike will either stop or they'll ask you are you good do you need anything you're on a road bike and you flat on the street, there won't be a motherfucker on a road bike that says a word to you. They'll just ride by you and not say a damn word to you. So I would say, like I wouldn't say mountain bikers are more friendly, but they're more service driven. They want to help more. I think that's a pretty reasonable comparison. Yeah. And like you don't ever see a uh, road bike be like, hey, dude, I'm going to help rebuild this road. They're like, who gives a fuck? I'm going to ride on the road. The whole road's mine, but there's mountain bikers that spend like, countless hours improving trails volunteering for trails and stuff like that so there's there's a huge there's a stark difference between a mountain biker and a road biker not to say that all road bikers are assholes but i'm gonna say a good majority of them are <laughs> so you can send your comments to uh be it make the difference us. <laughs> if you want to bitch about that all right then. so how so how uh how uh um so were you? You were in Seattle pretty much the whole time growing up, yeah, Mike. I, I, well, I was born and raised south end. I'm, I'm okay. like, you know, I'm the dirty side of Seattle. So, Got it. Uh, and kind of like John talked about sports. I mean, sports were what kept me on the straight and narrow. I was, I mean, I was. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get melodramatic, but I mean, I was on the have-not side of things. And the only thing that made me popular and opened doors for me is I was, you know, fortunately good at sports. Um, you know, and so it kept me out of trouble. It got me a good education. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, because you went to school that you, you know local locally. You went to UW, right? I did. I was. Uh, I did go to UW. I thought I wanted to go to uh, Oregon at the time because I wanted to get away from home. Uh huh. Um, but you know, at the time, Huskies were better. Uh, Huskies <laughs> are still better. Yeah. Uh, so always were. Uh, yeah, I signed with uh, Oregon, but at the last minute, I opted out and went back and stayed home. Um, and uh, yeah, I was a Husky. And uh, but like I said, my I was I was. I think I was good to her. Well, not good to her. I, I played a lot of tackle football very young, and um, I'm, I don't know. I make. I guess some people have stronger bodies than others, and I just wore out my body. By the time I got halfway through college, my body was so broken, and um, you know, I by my sophomore year, I already had three knee, knee surgeries, and um, you know, 30, 35 years ago, you know, repairing ACL then wasn't the same as repairing ACL yeah, now, right. and that basically wrote it off. And you know, in retrospect, and even actually. Um, like a year after self-pity, I quickly realized that getting injured was the best thing that ever happened to me 
because I realized that somebody else was going to pay for me to get a good education that financially my family could never have afforded. Um, and so I, you know, I still had two years left in school to take advantage of getting a good education on somebody else's dime and uh, you know, made a lot out of that opportunity. Uh, like I said, after that year of self-pity that I wasn't going to be a rich football player. Uh, I never would have been, but I didn't realize it in the moment. Yeah, well, well you don't want to give up on it. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's a tough transition because you've done that your whole life, and now it's the, your identity is kind of wrapped around that, and then you're like, yeah. now what the hell am I going to do? Like, yeah. I, I was this guy, and I did this, and that's what pretty much made the world go around for me. And then I think it's natural, even after retirement or something like yeah. that, you're going to have that year period you're like, I've got to kind of figure out what the hell I'm doing or whatever else. But it's funny, too, as a kid. I mean, like, my whole life was around that. My whole life when I was 20 years old. I mean, what's yeah. your freaking whole life at that point? But it seemed like everything. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. that's major. But yeah. it wasn't. So, like I said, I started riding my bike then and, you know, enjoying that. But, um, you know, I was, I was originally just riding a, a road bike because um, mountain biking was just kind of getting going then. Uh, I was never a BMXer, which is why John always crushes me on the downhills. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, road bikes, finished my undergraduate degree, started working for Bank of America up in Seattle. Uh, you know, I was young and hungry and took every promotion they gave me, so I moved around the country a bunch. And they moved me down to Phoenix uh, in the early 90s. And um, at that point... Uh, Literally, I came down there, uh, got an apartment right around the corner from the bike shop that was opening up that John was working in. John's like my longest friend I have in Arizona because literally, he's, I'd come home from you know corporate life, go to the grocery store. It wasn't Abco because <laughs> it was around the corner from me, and uh, they're opening up this bike shop there, and it's you know it's night, and like John's saying, they're building out the thing, and I got my nose pressed against the glass. <laughs> I'm tapping on it. What's going on here, guys? <laughs> Will you guys be my friend? I just moved here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and so from right then, I, you know, I hooked up with John, and we've been riding mountain bikes together on and off ever since, and, um, it, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. What would you do at Bank of America, Mike? Uh, originally, when I was in Bank of America and I got out of school, I was mergers and acquisitions. It was like in the 90s then when banks were buying up banks, and I was at the right place, right time and young and loose tent pegs, and so they could move me wherever. And so I would go all around the country, and um, you know wherever uh, my team was sent as we were buying banks and sa failed savings and loans and bring them into building up you know, the mega banks like B of A is today. What a cool job as like a young 20-something. Oh, it was awesome. awesome. Killer yeah. I mean, I spent six months in San Francisco living out of the Hyatt Embarcadero on Bank of America's dime. Yeah, um, and then so, you, you know, and everybody that you're working with that works for the bank actually can't afford to live in the city. So at night they got to take Marta um, back across oh, yeah. the bay to go to the other side. Well, you just get to hang out in the city, and it's like this is awesome. Well, plus you get to see the inner workings of of, of really what makes up a bank and how it operates and where it's strong, where it fails, like yeah. everything else. Like to have that exposure as a, yeah. as a as a young twenty something, people can work in 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 the banking industry for twenty years and not get get the exposure that you got in, at that very young age. Right. And my undergraduate was in finance, and so that's why I started in the mergers and acquisitions. But then after that, I transferred over to marketing and spent, like, the next, I don't know, 20 years of my life working in, in marketing. Um, so until uh, I got tired of that and um, decided that, you know, I'd spent most of my adult life working for basically making shareholders rich. Gotcha. Uh, and I got to the point where, uh, you know, I... Honestly, I, again, I just wanted to do something for my community at that point. Yeah. Um, I was I was burned out on making other people money, and um, which I don't think is is uncommon for for people to take your route. Like they're like, hey, there's got to be more than just this, right? Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I 
again, I don't want to make too much of it, but I've always, I think I've always been relatively grounded by um, when you have nothing growing up, you realize how little you really need. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and, and you know, and I, I would, I've, like I said, I was fortunate. I realized I could get an education with somebody else paying for it. Um, you know, I did well financially. I made some money, but you know, everything I have, it's like with a little bit of guilt because I know I have way more than I need. Yeah. Um, and that's where I finally got to the point where I, I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, you know, uh, parents had health issues. It was like, you know, let's go do something else. Let's, I mean, I'm not going to change the world, but I can make my community better one, one little step at a time. Nope. I can, I can fully appreciate that. Like I've, there's a group of men or whatever that I've been around that are, have been highly successful, a lot more successful than myself. And, 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 and we've had those conversations like, what is enough? Like, like what's your number? Like what's enough to be able to, to do something, to do something for like more meaningful. And, and I think I'm similar to you. I came from humble beginnings and I understand what it's like to, to not have things and, and stuff like that. And, and I went, I don't know if, if you went this route, but I went a point very early where I was like, Oh, it's nice to have this stuff. And then I quickly went, I don't need any of this shit. And I downsized everything, house, cars, everything. And like now, and, and this is for a long time. Like I think I've had that forerunner for I don't know how long, but I drive like a 2003 forerunner and like my mortgage payment, 780, 785 bucks. Like I don't, like I don't need the big gigantic house. Cause when I got to a certain point with money and it wasn't even that much money, all it did was, was make me feel secure and give me some freedom. But anything like above that gave me no joy whatsoever. I just need a new bike every year too. Yeah, I, I agree hundred <laughs> percent. So, but I think you're going to say something about the friendship. So, <laughs> no. So, I mean, a couple of things, I mean, Mike and I started, you know, he talked about showing up at the bike shop he showed up with this Kadex uh, <laughs> giant, you know, and, and we would work on it and then we started chatting and then we started riding together and then we started traveling to races together and stuff. So, um, so I've known him, like he said, uh, for a long, long time. And, uh, to say that he lives simply is, uh, yeah, it's an understatement really. And it's a, it's a testament to kind of who he is for sure. Um, he's, he's got the means to do a lot to have a lot more than he has, but he only gets what he needs. And that's, that, again, is a testament to kind of his character. Yeah, without a doubt. So um, so you worked at Bank of America. Um, once you were done there, you moved on. It was Cox, right, from there? Uh, no, from there it was, at the time it was U.S. West. And so oh, I, that's right. I okay, was working. Yeah. Phone company, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, they made the phone books, right, John? <laughs> So I was working at Bank of America, and they were moving me. Like I said, I was young and hungry, and I would take every promotion. At the time, I was working, uh, I think, mergers and acquisitions at the time. And so they were moving me all around, and they had put me in um, New Orleans at the time for a bank that we were looking at buying there. And um, uh, the next move from there would have taken me back to San Francisco. But at that point, I would have been like, I would have had to pay to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like... Well, number one, that's like really pricey. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure I'm down with that. And I don't want to spend an hour commuting every day. Right. And secondly, I'd really like to go back to Phoenix because um, I really liked, you know, the, I, when you grow up in Seattle, you don't, it doesn't rain as much as everybody thinks, but it's gray a lot. Oh, yeah. But if sure. you grow up there, you don't know any better. And I'd done all this moving around, you know, until I was 18, I hadn't gone anywhere, really. And then, you know, through college and then, you know, working for the bank and getting moved around, I'm seeing all these other places. I'm like, wow, it doesn't have to be gray all the time. This is pretty awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I like the outdoors because the Northwest, I mean, even though it's gray and you got to wear Gore-Tex, you go outdoors a lot. So I loved all that. Um, but it's like, let's go back to Phoenix and do stuff outdoors in the sun. Um, and so a boss that I had at Bank of America had taken a job in marketing at... Uh, 
at U.S. West. And so I was like, hey, you got anything? Yeah. <laughs> and so one thing led to another. It brought me back to Phoenix. And so then I worked for um, worked there for quite a while in marketing. And um, That wouldn't happen to have anything to do with uh, U.S. West sponsoring cycling teams, would it? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> 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 yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Um, yeah. That was purely a savvy marketing decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was Yeah, good investment of our marketing budget. I like it. Um, yeah, so I stayed there for like seven or eight years. And then um, through that, we went through, you know, the phone company. It's funny, the phone companies, you guys won't care, but quickly. It was AT&T, and then it was broken down into seven yep. baby bells. And then there was consolidation again, as it went back the other way. And so then U.S. West went to be Quest, and then it went to be CenturyLink, and, um, you know, through all of that stuff. And then that actually had a lot of, opened a bunch of doors for me, because my background originally in B of A was mergers and acquisitions. Right. I was like, oh, I know how to do this. Or they look at me like, you know how to do this. Can you help us? And so I did that, but it was... Um, Somebody told me early on, and I unfortunately didn't listen until it was too late. It was like, never put anything on your resume you don't want to do again. Um, and so, um, you know, people knew that I had that background. I got put into that again, but I didn't enjoy it. And, um, uh, yeah, it sucks. I mean, one thing you do with mergers and acquisitions that people don't think about it is you fire a lot of people. And it's shit. Um, and honestly, that's what drove me away from it is I part of what we had to do was lay off a lot of people. And I did not enjoy that at all. Um, and so I ended up moving over to, uh, to Cox because my, my boss's next door neighbor was the regional general manager for Cox. And so I was like, I, I gotta tap out of this. I just, you know, emotionally, I don't like doing this. Um, and so then I took a job over at Cox, uh, worked in marketing there for uh, seven or eight years. Um, and that was interesting because Cox is, um, you know, it's it's a big company, but it's a family-owned company, so it has a really great culture, um, mostly, but it's still a big company. Um, so it's it's pros and cons, but uh, again, it, that wore on me ultimately as well. And like I said, I got to the point where, um, you know, done well for myself, done well for other people, um, but wanted to do well for my community. Not to shoot off tangent or anything like that, but I worked in corporate America for about five years, you know, before I changed careers. And I think it's pretty soul-sucking if you work for the wrong company. Yeah. Um, it's. Did you see the transition from when you started with Bank of America to when you ended at Cox, like like the the general cult culture of corporate changing? And that's what kind of, like, burned you out? Like yeah, I mean, I think B of A was a, a good culture. It was a good company. I liked B of A a lot. Um, I didn't necessarily like what I was doing because of, that human right. aspect of it. Um, not disparaging Centrally. <laughs> I did not like working for the phone company. Right. Um, I mean, there was a lot of institutional thinking. Uh, it had always been done this way, so there was no appetite or limited appetite for innovation. It was... Um, <laughs> we don't know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I did not like that. But then you go back to Cox. Cox was a family-owned company. Um, when I joined Cox, it was publicly traded, but um, the Cox family still owned a lot of it. And mm -hmm. while I was at Cox, actually, the family bought back controlling share of the company, um, which did a lot of it. But still, when you're that big of a company, uh, you know, there are culture elements that, yeah. you know, you just can't displace. Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah. 
God right. done with it. Yeah. But I, it, it does. It, you, you it'll burn you out because I see a lot of banking guys because I know people who work for Chase and Bank of America stuff like that and like towards the end they're just like it just, I think it just ch- slowly chips away at you. Yeah. Slowly. Yeah. It just takes a little bit of your soul every year, especially with the stuff you were doing and when you're having to see the anguish and the sadness when you like w- w- when you have to lay off people and uh-huh. it, that person's making 12 bucks an hour and this that and the other and it's really affecting them like that can't sit well with you if you're a normal human being that actually has a soul well and there are people so. there i mean i still have friends it, it, going all the way back to bank of america i mean I, there are people that do well there but i think again it's just part of the way you're wired and the friends that i have there are able to turn that switch off when they leave yeah um you know and my wiring just did not allow me to do that mm-hmm. you know i, I carried it 24 7 and um well because it was Probably because it was more than a job for you. Yeah. Right? Like, it, whether people want to believe it or not, what you do defines who you are as a person. And, and, and when you when you sign on to something that you don't necessarily, that doesn't fit your morals and ethics mm-hmm. and makes you feel bad, you can't be part of it. And I yeah. understand that completely. Yeah. So. Well, and I got started. I mean, I, I well, full disclosure. I mean, I got in it for the money because going oh, back, sure. you know, coming from the have nots, I was like, I want mine. If I can get it. I get um, it. You know, and I chased it hard. Um, and then I found out how unrewarding it was. Yeah, yeah, no, totally good. Yeah, funny how that works, huh? Yeah. So you, uh, before we got rolling in the, the cycling league, you had already retired, and, and it's not as if you had retired to come do this. You had retired and kind of made your decision of you're either going to take a break yeah. or actually really retire, right? I did. I So I was at Cox. Um, my mom had a recurrence of cancer that was going to inevitably be terminal at that point. Um, and it was just like, you know what, I'm not going to let my mom die in hospice. I'm going to help my stepdad. Right. And so, um, you know, was that in Seattle or is that, that down was, here? It was my, down here. My, was mom, here. my mom had followed me down here. She's like, you know, she, um, you know, Arizona's a great place. Why am I right, not right. down there? Yeah. I'm like, so she came and, um, she was living down here, which was really fortunate actually, um, in terms of being able to give care for her and, and have that down here. Um, but, you know, going through that whole process, I think, was part of that epiphany for me with, you know, about um, it was time to do something else. You know, in my mind, my mom died when she was 63, you know, and to me, that was just like, that was way too young. And I started looking at it. And it was really, you know, my mom died of cancer at 63. My, or, no, she died at 66. My dad died of cancer at 63. Um, but both my grandparents lived, died of old age in their, you know, late 90s. Um, so it was like, you know, wasn't. It wasn't like this was in our family, and you know, right, you had, right, yeah, had come to expect it, or just, not that you necessarily expect it, but it was just, it was like totally foreign. And all of a sudden, you know, both my parents were dead, and you know, I was doing a job I found kind of soulless. Um, and so I was, you know, I, I guess technically retired, um, but it was really kind of, um, what am I going to do next? And, right. And being a, just kind of a timeout, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it was hit pause. Yeah. Um, you know, being a kid from Seattle, I, you know, I, I grew up in the, the, the Microsoft, um, you know, that whole phase. And, uh, you know, I thought I'm going to go back home. I've got friends that work for the Gates foundation. Somebody's going to hook me up and I'll get a job doing something there. Um, and then these two guys told me that, you know, you don't have to move back to Seattle to do good. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've found something we can do that we're not going to make any money. Yeah. That's, we're going to work really, really hard yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and fret over. Um, sounds like a good deal. Sounds great. Where do I sign up? <laughs> Active duty retirement. Yes, please. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so let's kind of get into that because uh, I say a friends like you guys fucking needs enemies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're, uh, really, this is John. John's 
kind of to blame for this whole deal because of totally. him and, totally. and his associations with uh, uh, his, his some friends from from Northern California. So yeah, I met uh, through actually a social media site called MTBR. Uh, some guys from NorCal were coming down to ride, and we're just kind of looking for some beta on on trails in Prescott. Uh, had been living there quite some time at that point, and um, so. I said, yeah, you know, you can do this trail, this trail. I go, when are you guys coming up? And um, so they told me, and uh, I had a project actually at the house that I was working on. So I go, I'll it was take, a big project. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take. So, anyways, we went on a ride and uh, um, just kind of hit it off with these guys. And, and then um, one of the guys said, hey, I'm coming back down to Prescott. And I go, well, I'm kind of right in the middle of this project. So this dude actually he was a he was a framer, um, oh, carpenter, and um, helped me build this huge deck project. And then he goes, as long as you take me for a ride, I'll help you. And he, we really worked uh, for two days straight, and we just rode and stuff. So anyways, had maintained this friendship with these two guys from NorCal. And uh, one of them started working for the NorCal Cycling League, or Nor- Nor- I think yeah, that's what NorCal. it was called back yeah, then. Uh-huh. Yeah, so... Uh, and that's that was the start of NICA there, um, prior to NICA actually starting. So he had done quite a few years with them, and he would call me, he's a super excitable guy, and he'd call me after every race. He's like, hey, man, this is so awesome. And he'd, t- you know, he'd just go on and on about how great uh, what they were doing in NorCal was. And I said, that's awesome. You know, keep, my kids were small at the time, pretty young. And I said, just keep us in the loop and you know, keep us apprised of this. And in my head, I start building this team. And I start building, uh, okay, you know, Chris is the logistics guy. He's, he's the right guy. You know, Mike's kind of marketing and business and everything else. He's got this tremendous background for this. Both have this passion for cycling. Uh, so I start building this in my head as, as Scott keeps telling me about all these things. And, and so He didn't tell us, though. Yeah, I didn't. No. no. <laughs> Some things are better left undisclosed. <laughs> so... Um, so the NorCal League's just rolling along, and, and probably, I don't know how, how deep into it, uh, they decided in NorCal, hey, this is a really great idea. I think SoCal might have reached out to them, and Mike probably knows more about the history of NICA than I do, but uh, essentially they started the national organization and started this national movement. And I still kept saying, hey, man, keep us in the loop, keep us in the loop. And, and they, you know, they were literally building the plane as they were flying it with NICA and the national movement. And, um, and so we were always up on it. And then I started to let, I think, Chris in on it a little bit. And then I started to let Mike in on it a little bit. Uh, well, and I think we had been reading about it independently yeah. because you, you, you couldn't, you know, read a bicycle publication or, or anything like that where that wasn't a topic of conversation because, so uh, let me t- jump back a second, is Northern California was the start of interscholastic cycling for real. Uh, I'm sure it had happened in very, very small microcosms around the United States over the years, but they're the ones that did it for real and actually made it a true inter- interscholastic uh, sport in, in Northern California. And it started at Berkeley High um, and, um, and they, they started to grow there. And then, and then like John said, is Southern California was, was hip to the hip to what was going on and they start their own deal down there. And, um, and then they're like, wow, this could probably go nationally. So there probably needs to be some type of national association that, that, uh, um, uh, that works on this and works to build this. And that's what the NorCal league, you know, really became. And uh, so this is this is about cross country mountain bike uh, racing 
um, as a legitimate high school at the time high school sport um, in Northern California, and then and then it's gone many many places since then. So it's uh, essentially it's starting a new interscholastic sport in the in the United States where cycling is not. Uh, or had not had the um, uh, the the social background, or they in, it wasn't ingrained in the culture as it was, in, or it has it as it has been in like Europe and uh, and other places like that, where where cyclists are national heroes and and cyclists. Well, really, until Lance Armstrong shows up, cycling was uh, nobody really thought much about it. It was pretty underground. Well, didn't they make a? a um a movie or documentary on on the kids from NorCal because I saw that video. I'm like, man, this is crazy because I, I I still remember the kids from I don't know it's Fresno or something. <laughs> All the cops were Sacra- the ones. I think it was Sacramento. Oakland. No, oh, yeah, is it Oakland? yeah, the cops they from the Oakland them. High School yeah. team. Yeah. yeah, yeah, those kids were on like some ghetto bikes and they're riding around like a baseball yeah. diamond. Bad news bears kind right? of yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah. And the overpasses, their hill training. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. Ardell and Betsy's team, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not a current day. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. So anyway, yeah. So go ahead, John. I, yeah, but I want—I just wanted to give some background on truly what this is and, and what it looks like. No, so that was so that was again, you know, early on in in NICA, the national organization, the national movement, like National uh, Interscholastic Cycling Association. Okay, which is you. our governing body. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's the club we belong to. So yeah. they started a board, and then that board started to make some decisions on on how leagues were brought into you know states and leagues were brought into the organization and initially the the buy-in was just way too high for us and uh just wasn't going to make sense financially and and my kids were still young and, and chris's kids were still young so so we weren't ready to take that leap i don't think at that point but we had definitely discussed it among uh, the three of us at that point and i don't it was almost like a brandon to answer your question of how much it was kind of like you had to bring a big sponsor into the national organization. What was the dollar amount, Mike? Was it was it twenty five? Twenty five k. Yeah, it was twenty five thousand to buy in a essentially a franchise, yeah, right? Yeah, there's twenty five k buy in, and then there's recurring money that you pay them. Even to this day, you pay them for it every every kid and every coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Franchise fees are cheaper usually. <laughs> yeah, so we kind of as a group decide. At some point, and I don't necessarily re- truly remember the entire conversation of, well, we might as well do this, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't, I don't even remember it being like this big moment. We were just everybody shrugged their shoulders, and goes, well, okay, let's go, right? So here's the team, and uh, and kind of here's what the process looks like, and and like I said, I kind of chose handpicked these guys to be. Uh, the ones to carry this forth because I'm not sure I would have the focus to do it all the way through. Um, so I'm I'm not great at getting all those things done, but I'm pretty decent at picking the right folks to get oh, things done. Gorgeous. Yes. So um, yeah. So so I found my team and uh, and we kind of we kind of went for it. Met a guy named Matt Fritzinger who at that point was running the the national organization. Uh, met him at Sea Otter. He was um, the guy that actually started the NorCal League. So he was a math teacher that found out he could get out of going to teacher meetings or whatever if he was the sponsor of a club. It was at Berkeley, right? It was at Berkeley High. Yeah. And so he wanted to start a cycling club. And so he put out the flyers or whatever, and then it was going to be a road club, but the four kids showed up to the first meeting and they all had mountain bikes. It's like, I guess we're a mountain biking club. And yeah. <laughs> that's, just, that, that's where it trailed off. Yeah, so we had gone to Sea Otter to, just for us, right? We were going to race and have a good time. We, we, we made, you know, did two or three trips a year to go 
rider bikes and sea otter had been kind of a regular deal for us and we were like well is if we're really going to do this we probably should try and talk to the guy that that's running it at the time and, and matt still he was still involved uh, yeah i don't remember exactly what his position was but it was he was virtually running it if it if he yeah. wasn't part of a group at that point yeah. he was executive executive director of it then and at that point there were six other leagues okay yeah yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So when we got, when we uh, basically threw our hat into the ring or, or wrote our proposal and, and wrote our and, proposal, laying on the couch in a rental property and in Monterey, in or Monterey in, uh, uh, Pacific Beach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what is it? Pebble Beach. Pebble Beach. Yeah. Yeah. Thank we you. were in Pebble right. Beach because yeah, we had been racing otter. at Sea Otter. So yeah. we we're like, all right, well, we might as well do this and jump jumped into it. And then at that point, they had. So the, the the national scene was Northern California, Southern California, uh, Utah, Minnesota, Washington. No, they were they had come in and they had left. By okay, then. Washington had so left, right? Colorado okay. and um, uh, somebody's going to hate me for not remembering them. <laughs> and somebody else. I thought for Minnesota was one of them, yeah, right? It, yeah, yeah, Minnesota was right. Yeah, Minnesota so and Utah yeah. were right before us, right? Minnesota, Utah, and somebody else was right before us. SoCal and NorCal. There was Why? NorCal, SoCal, then Colorado, and then the next class of three was Utah, Minnesota, and um, somebody else. We're going to have to look at it. Was it the South? Mm-mm. Uh-uh. Okay. Well, we're, all right. So we'll, we'll, we'll look that up. So the and Minnesota link, uh, Brandon, I heard the question in your voice. Um, QBP, which is a, a national supplier for bike shops, um, parts and equipment and bikes, uh, they're based out of Minnesota. Quality bike parts. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, and they're a big, big hitter in the in the bike industry. So they they basically, I I think the beginnings of the of the Minnesota League were all QBP employees. It was basically a it was a company project. It really is what it sounds like. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be. Yeah, you could come cool. into work or you could go put on the races. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad gig, huh? <laughs> Yeah, so Mike's going to the phone of knowledge, so yeah. we should have an answer. The internet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so when so we uh, we wrote our proposal, we put uh, when we put in, there were quite a few other states that put in, and I don't remember the exact number. Do you the year it was maybe five or six? Yeah, and they awarded it to three of us, and they it was uh, New York, Tennessee, and us, uh, Arizona. Uh, were, were, were we basically we were all awarded our franchise. And, uh, and then at that point it was, uh, we really needed to get Texas. our stuff together. Oh, Texas. Yeah. That uh, how can we, for, how can we forget <laughs> the Republic <laughs> of Texas? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, geez, I, I, I couldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of for life of me, but yeah. So anyway, so we, we get awarded and we are in the class of 2012, 2013. 2012 is when we were awarded it. Yeah. And our first race was 2013. So, um, our, Prior to being, uh, uh, you know, awarded our our franchise, so to speak, is we had to go out and figure out how we were going to raise this twenty five thousand dollars to, uh, you know, and so that the three of us aren't paying twenty five for the, you know, coming out of pocket for twenty five thousand. And we, uh, um, our one of our very first stops was uh, Pivot Cycles here, which is a, uh, um, you know, they're a they're a really fantastic bike company, and they just happen to be based here in Tempe. And Chris Kokalis is their is their president, and and you know kind of started the company, and we had known Chris 
um, previously in, in, in his previous bike uh, uh, life uh, with uh, owning Titus cycles here. Uh, and again, uh, uh, based out of Tempe. And so we, uh, and then uh, John had also uh, had a really close friend of his that ended up going to work for Chris at Pivot uh, uh, really, really early on. I think he was employee number two, of, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely in the in the front end of that. And yeah. I, believe it. I call him employee number two. I'm not sure if he'd own that, but yeah. yeah right. So uh, so we are we we get a we get a meeting or get uh, we get uh, Chris uh, and his, and a couple folks on his staff to be to sit down and actually listen to our pitch at their first place uh, in here in Tempe, and I'll, I'll let you guys talk about that meeting because. Well, so I'll start. Uh, it was super interesting because we had no idea which direction it was going to go. And if I remember right, we were headed out for a trip somewhere uh, we were, after we, that meeting. We were going to Lake Arrowhead to learn how to put on a, or see yes, a race for the yes. first time. Uh, from the SoCal folks. Yeah, from yeah, SoCal. Matt, uh-huh. you know, Matt Ganell from SoCal has been a kind of a mentor of ours uh, yeah. from the get-go. So anyways, um, yeah, we sat down in that meeting with really no idea. And we had made some guesses at to kind of what, you know, what level they were going to come in sponsorship-wise. We had an idea. We weren't optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, was, what, was your, what was your guess? Uh, I think a couple. Oh, we were excited. Yeah. I think we would have been excited if we got maybe four or five, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and Mike can talk about the different levels of sponsorship, yeah. uh, you know, uh, bronze, silver, gold, platinum. But anyways, so we went into that meeting uh, with very, uh, we were cautiously optimistic. Uh, we were very comfortable with our ability to make it happen and run the races, but uh, we but just the, he didn't know that. <laughs> no, and and honestly, we're at that point we're selling snake oil, right? Because we don't have anything other than uh, did, I don't even think we had a commitment from Nike at that point. Uh, I think we had the commitment from Nike, but we had that was all we had, right? I mean, we had zero <laughs> sponsorship uh-huh. dollars. Right. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was. They were ready to take a twenty five thousand yeah, dollar check from us. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that part was interesting, and I'll let Mike kind of speak to to that progression of the meeting because his memory is probably a lot better than mine. So we get in there and we have the meeting and, and honestly, I mean, we were just happy to have the meeting because, like John said, we were selling, we were selling dirt. We had nothing, and somebody, you know, yeah, uh, somebody took a meeting with us right off the bat, so we were feeling pretty big. Uh, you know, if I'm in his shoes, I'm going to ask, "Hey, have you guys ever done this before?" And our answer would have had to have been no. <laughs> so we get in there and, and um, you know, I start by leading the presentation and I get into it not not two minutes. I mean. I, I, I sweat over this. I mean, I'm, I'm putting on my corporate America hat. I'm doing a big, you know, dog and pony, and I'm going to try and sell them on the movement, on us, and everything else. And I get, you know, in there, and I, I think I'm all ready for it. And I get into it, like, not two minutes. And he interrupts me, and he says, I'm in, but why should I believe you guys can do it? And I was like, I was not ready for that question <laughs> right after that. So he had done his homework. He was ready to get behind the, the youth movement of interscholastic cycling. He just wanted to know why he should invest in us doing it. Um, you know, and so like, think on your feet. Um, you know, we answered those questions. I, I, obviously, we gave at least And it helped that we had been yeah. as customers before. Yeah. We gave at least adequate answers. You need to, to, to color that up a little bit because that's not a good enough answer. <laughs> What'd you tell them? Uh, well, I mean, part of it is we told them why we wanted to do it because, I mean, I think when you look into what you're doing, it from my perspective is the, the why is more important than the what. Um, because at the end of the day, what we're doing isn't rocket science. Anybody could do it if you lean into it hard enough. But why are you doing it? Um, 
you know, is going to speak to the quality of it and the sustainability. Um, you know, and everything that, that we've done ever since we've launched, I always try and look at it for, through the lens of is it repeatable, scalable, and sustainable? Because um, that speaks to our structure and, and what we're doing and, and who we want to help and how we want to serve them. And so that was kind of the story that we told them is like, here's why we're here, here's why we're doing it. Kind of this, a little bit on a much higher level of, of earlier stuff that we talked on this podcast about, about who we are and why we wanted to do this um, and giving back to our community and growing for it. And, um, you know, Chris bought it. Well, so I even think even to this day, because he recently did an interview um, and I can't remember who, who he did the interview with, but he actually talked about how important being involved in, in youth cycling was and, and his connection to us and, and, and talked about, because I think one of the things that we sold him on is uh, the fact that we have the time to do it because Mike was in the position he was in and John and I had the jobs we were in. And, and I don't know if being a firefighter actually played into it, but I think the I think he there was a level of trust in people who were firefighters and the fact that we had the time and and he knew us a little bit and 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 not not very deeply personally but uh i think he uh, believed that we weren't flakes well right? yeah and i was gonna say from like his standpoint i don't know what like what the company was doing in 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 profit in those years, but $25,000 might have been just a drop in the bucket, but you guys are really the character behind the league, and if you guys are shitbags and not good people, mm-hmm. and that's a brand that he's developed through years and years and years of, of, of blood, sweat, and tears, and if, and if he can't stand behind you guys, then there's no way that he's going to be able to, to stand behind that, because if if those kids, as like as a business owner or or something like that. Even if you get those kids young, they're they're going to be the next generation of pivot purchasers, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And 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 obviously, he does believe in in cycling that much. But yeah, I mean, that's a great question to ask you guys. Like, why it? Like, why should it be you guys? Mm-hmm. In fact, that's a great question. To, we might want to ask yes. him that someday. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, go go ahead and finish off the, the 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 presentation, or you know, what 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 ended up happening. So we, we got through the presentation. We, you know, a- adapted to the moment, gave him the answers that, that uh, passed the must with him. And so he said that he was in. He made the commitment. He basically wanted to understand what are the levels, which, you know, just generically, you know, you have bronze, silver, gold, platinum. He's like, well, I want in on platinum. He's like, I don't know what it is, but I want in at the top. It's 25000 <laughs> <laughs> Well, he, he didn't pay for all of it, but he gave us, you know, he, he signed up to be at the top level. And, the, you know, the biggest thing he gave us was credibility, um, because after we left totally. that meeting, everybody that we could talk to, we said, you know, yeah, we haven't put on a race yet, and yeah, Nike is just getting started, and yeah, there's only six other leagues, um, but we've got Pivot behind us, and they've signed up at the top. Um, so, you know, where would you like to sign up? Well, let's talk about a little more what they do, just minus that. Yeah, so let's talk about how they, they've engaged in the league, Mike, because I yeah. think it's a pretty interesting deal. Yeah, so... So what they do, obviously, there's the financial support that we, we get from them, which, um, you know, the, we've always been very um, ambitious with our fundraising in terms of finding sponsors, in terms of um, going after grants, in terms of going after donations, stuff like that, because that's the way that we can keep the, the entry fees down for the kids. I mean, we're a nonprofit, but it doesn't mean we're a charity. So we've got to pay the bills. Um, so we, we need to raise some money there. And um, so we've gone after Pivot and some others to get the bikes. But... Uh, or to get the to pay the bills there, but the other part of it is the bikes, and 
you know, we a lot of people, and even the Nike model in the beginning, their sales pitch to everybody was, you know, this is a really easy sport. There's not a lot of investment and whatever. It's like, yeah, until you look at some kid riding a $10,000 S-Works bike. Mm-hmm. It's like, it can be really expensive. And no, they don't need that bike. But everybody needs a bike. Um, and so we got money from Pivot, but arguably what we got even more from Pivot is every year they give us more bikes. And so those bikes we um, disperse out into the communities from everywhere from uh, up on the Navajo Nation to Casa Grande to even here in the Valley, but throughout the state so that kids that don't have access to a bike but want to participate have a bike to ride. Right. Um, Which is tremendous because at, for for a cheap-ass bike that we would never ride anymore, like it's 500 bucks, and at 500 bucks for some of these families is unattainable for decades. You know, to, to you know, they don't have enough money to put food on the table or, or clothes on their kids' back. Like, when the hell they're going to find five hundred bucks by the kid a bike to go do this stuff? Right. So we, like I was mentioning earlier, with our fundraising and stuff like that to pay the bills, we use that fundraising a lot to help scholarship the kids that are financially need because we want to make it as accessible as possible. But the bikes are more than we could buy just with the money we raise, and For so sure. we get bikes through Pivot. Pivot cobbles together their relationships with Shimano, with Fox, with other suppliers, and so suddenly we have yeah stands yeah. These kids are riding nicer bikes than they never ride the rest of their life. Yeah, um, so that, that is a really cool part. So we get these loaner bikes. You will have kids that are maybe the newest uh, cyclist uh, on the team and uh, um, uh, riding the coolest bike on the team. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a huge yeah. deal. I mean, for me as a kid, I was a poor kid, and like, I, don't, like, I don't care to tell the story now. You, you, you can come get me later. I always had shit bikes, and then there, there might have been a few times where I tra- upgraded that bike with a neighborhood <laughs> from a rich neighborhood and <laughs> left their garage open. I'll leave my huffy, and I'm, I might have had a GT, so like that. So Checkout program. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I always left them something, but that's a big deal, and like I don't know whether you guys realize it or not, but you're changing those kids' lives or potentially the next generation, their kids' lives, by, by giving them that opportunity because – um, I, you guys maybe don't think about this stuff, but, but what has a bike done for you guys? And, and like, what has a bike done for these kids? Like going, going beyond the racing and the teamwork stuff and like being able to ride a bike, but to be on a bike and to be good on a bike, you have to be able to suffer your ass off. So that teaches life lessons like forever. Like for me, like wrestling is what taught me how to su- suffer the most. Like when your chips are down, when you have to work long hours, when you've been in a shit, shitty situation, like you, you're you're helping those kids establish those that work ethic and that mental toughness to be able to grind through something or just bust through something that maybe if they never had that chance, they would never have that ability to just get through something, which is a huge, huge deal. And I, like I don't know how much you guys have even thought about that. Well, we've been very conscientious of that. I mean, the league overall. I mean, we. Our league is a youth development organization. We just are fortunate enough to get to do on a bike. I mean, we're developing strong mind, body, and character, um, but we do it with a bike. So all those things, those lessons that they, they can take through the rest of their life, um, like you were just alluding to, uh, we're getting them out there and doing it on the bike. And, um, you know, originally, stepping back from it, I mean, we started with, you know, not everybody is a ball and stick sport kid like I was but I mean there's people like John out there and now we let them do stuff but now you get kids that you know I would rather do this than play football or I'll do this and play soccer Mm -hmm. Um, so you're getting much more of a cross-section of it and the other thing I want to add about the loaner bikes before we get off of that is it not only gives us the opportunity to get it for the kids that just don't have the money but even a family that has the money you know kids have are really hot for something for two weeks and they may not be after that so to ask a parent to spend the money 
even if they have it, um, it can be a stretch. So then, you know, we have the bikes going, yeah, you can try it and you can ride it. Is your kid going to stick with it before they spend the money? We get the money back and then we can redeploy it somewhere else. And we can go a lot of different directions with that because the last thing cycling needs is more white guys riding their bikes. <laughs> and so, you know, we can do things with the reservation. We can do things, you know, um, get more girls on bikes. We can do all sorts of other things to make it look um, more of, more reflective of our community and not just white males. Yeah. So I, I think um, we thought, you know, we felt like we were going to have a positive impact, but the whole time we've been learning truly how serious and significant that impact is, and it's showing itself in different, in different ways as we, as we move through this from kids that were, you know, so one, one of our, one of our more interesting stories is of a kid who started with the Cactus Shadows team who weighed 300 pounds and, you know, he was, he had spent a lot of time behind a computer screen and, and video games. And, uh, and Mike and I were actually present at his first practice where he couldn't finish up a, a sport loop, uh, at, um, at our McDowell to, uh, um, uh, winning winning one of the varsity or one of the races his senior year as a varsity racer wow. and now racing in college wow. and uh and and, and weighs half as much yeah li yeah literally weighs half as much and and uh his mom uh his mom cries every time she comes up and talks to us and hugs us for 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 the league and seeing what 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 has happened and so that we we have examples like that and so I, I would want to t talk about because one of the things, the strengths of what I think we've done is the value-driven, uh, you know, our a value-driven process, and with the with the uh, the the strong uh, mind, body, and character um, that you know th those really were points that 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 Nika uh, started, and they they the the seeds were were, were planted there, but. Um, I'm proud of the fact that our organization actually lives that, and our, our our league actually lives that. So, Mike, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's huge. It's, uh, you know, racing is the most visible thing that we do, but that's only five weekends a year uh, during our race season. Um, it's everything. It's it, our customer is our coaches, and our coaches get to impact those kids. Um, and the, the lives that they get to impact through our work and giving them the platform to do that, um, you know, for me, it's just priceless. And in this year of COVID, when we haven't been able to race because of, of gathering size restrictions and whatnot, um, our teams, we, we are bigger this year than we were last year, even though we're not racing. We haven't had one race this year. Because of the, the value they get, um, both the kids just flat out enjoy it, and the adults that, you know, at a, a more direct level get to impact those kids and work with them. Um, and so they're still going out there and they're practicing with no race to be aiming for. Maybe they're doing a little more adventure riding or, you know, a little bit more uh, discovery instead of just trying to get in the hurt locker. But, you know, they're still out there four days a week, whatever, getting ready. Uh, they've been doing it since July, up and down, dealing with the bubble we've had to do with COVID. And they'll do it through the end of this month before we call it the end of the season. So numbers-wise, you said first race was in 2013? Yep. Yes. How many racers? 206. Now? Right now we have 1,209. Jeez, that's a lot of kids, man. Well, and you say five weekends, but I mean, I, I came and helped out and, and set up um, the courses a couple times with Cody. Um, but there's a lot to, 
to do to set up for those, right? Well, yeah. So there's a lot <laughs> yeah. to do, and we have a there, there's way more than the three of us. <laughs> so we 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 would be really really remiss, you know, and not talking about that. So um, it, on the on the what to do side is yeah. So the coaches who really are the backbone of our league, and they're the ones that that manage and run, and 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 w- along with the team directors, they're the individual teams, and they they manage the. They manage everybody that shows up to our race. Uh, you know, really, we just we put on the we 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 provide the vehicle to have that, and they're they're the ones doing the work. So, um, they they have a a tremendous part of uh, part of the process. And that platform that we provide that goes all the way down to our coaches. One thing that's unique about us is we're a no cut sport. So unlike going out and trying out for the football team, and then hopefully we get a play and not just stand on the sideline. Anybody that shows up. So well, there's that three hundred kid pound kid that. You're thinking, man, that's going to be rough, and we hope it turns out well. To the kid that's already been riding his or her whole life and is already fast, everybody that shows up gets to participate. So they're on the team. That's one of the requirements that we have for our teams that register with us. You have to take anybody that comes. I mean, you need to have the bandwidth of coaching to work with them, but you can't turn a kid away around. You know, you can't make this a mercenary sport for who's the fastest. Um, You know, and then our racing categories and the events that we put on, I mean, I get more – joy out of seeing the kid that their whole race was just fit, you know going to finish that day i mean i have great admiration for the kid that can just pin it that um it's like shit i wish i was young and fast like that um but it's that kid that i know from the time that they were in the starting shoot you know butterflies up the yin yang uh and their whole race was within their own you know self to get to the finish line that day yeah they're literally crying at the start because they're so nervous and, and you see parents crying at the fin- I mean, oh yeah w- we've had a kid that you know We'll do multi-lap races, and depending because of time and safety, sometimes kids can't finish all their laps. I mean, we've had kids where it wasn't until the last race of the year that they finished all of their laps, and you see them, um, you know, their mom, their dad, whoever. I mean, they're crying at the finish line because they made it. Super cool. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and, and there's your life lesson. I mean, they they leaned into it all year and they made it. Yeah. Well, because when I watched that documentary too, those kids from Oakland or whatever, like yeah. a bunch of them never finished. A race until you know the last and then each one of you guys on race day has a role can you guys talk about that yeah um so we have a really big team uh actually uh that uh and i don't even remember the exact number anymore it started out 18. as eight now it's 18 yeah we're up to 18 and so we have 18 really critical functions actually on the day of our events and and the goal was the goal will always at least for john and i was to recruit a team and be good enough at what we do. So all Mike has to do on Saturdays and Sundays is walk around and uh, shake hands and kiss babies uh, so um, that we could take care of stuff. Um, but now he monitors things like uh, course tape and stuff like that. But that's... Uh, he, he, Riding he, in the infield. Yeah, he can't, he, he can't help that. So, um, uh, but anyway, so we have... So the, the team that it takes to actually do this is... Um, right now, so part of the evolution of this is um, one of the one of the key roles we have is our coach, uh, the uh, the folks that work with our coaches, and we have them. Uh, we have men and women uh, from the uh, northern part of the state, from the central part of the state, and from the southern part of the state that really are our coach advocates, and they do a lot of the training for the coaches and teaching the coaches how to teach the kids, and so um, they're. Uh, although they're kind of the newest part of our team, they're a really critical p- part of the way the league connects to the teams outside of the races. 
Um, and then we have our kind of our core staff that that uh, helps us uh, at the events. Event production. Yeah, and and again, that was John and I and and Mike recruiting smart people that we know that you know were like minded and and weren't afraid to work and all that. So now, uh, like our scoring team is uh, our, our the guys that used to run uh, the CAD for the fire department. So we've got, you know, Mike Worrell and Lance Strong uh, uh, who manage the scoring uh, for us. And we have fantastic, not only does the system we use fantastic, but literally they're getting the results uh, out, you know, 20, 30 minutes after the race ends. And we're doing awards. You know, we used to go to mountain bike races and what, wait two hours for them to figure out the timing and Hopefully. when the awards were and all that other stuff. If if that fast, and now we're literally doing it in twenty minutes and doing awards and and final and, results in twenty minutes. I mean, we're streaming live results while racing. Yeah, exactly. So now, yeah, we're also broadcasting the the live results uh, via um, uh, a local area network um, for everybody who's at the event. And so Mike and Lance do that, and they do a fantastic job. And they actually make it really look look really really easy. Um, and uh, and then we've brought in folks that uh, well, all, just about all, our families. <laughs> our families are critical parts of it. Uh, Mike's wife uh, handles our merchandise. Uh, um, uh, my wife has been uh, working in scoring uh, for 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 well almost every year except for this last one. And then uh, and then John's wife's had like six different jobs in the league <laughs> landing and in, in, with registration. And, uh, and so, um, they're pretty critical. We have a chief, uh, we have a chief referee, uh, um, Sherry Wallace, who's, uh, she's fantastic chief referee. Um, she's a great person and a great cyclist as well, but, uh, it's really nice having her. Our volunteer coordinator is a guy from Prescott who's been involved in NBAA and a lot of other things. And, and, uh, you know, is not afraid to show up and, and help and do do cool stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have our course setter. We have a, a somebody who comes out and manages uh, them, a, a small team and some volunteers in setting up the course and marking the course. So again, we're we're putting on races for for high school and middle at this point, high school and middle school kids. So marking the course and making sure that we can manage the accountability of the kids out on the race at the race and and how we and how we mark the course so they know where they're going and they don't get lost their parents get really upset if we lose kids and so uh, we Most really yeah we, we really we we've tried to pay close attention to that um and then um and then we have the one lone police officer that works with us who uh uh is our uh, chief course marshal and so we we figured we had to have a police officer be the course marshal, and so he's the guy that manages. We put out depending on the course and the distance, we put out uh, a fairly large number, you know, anywhere between twelve to eighteen course marshals out on course that can keep track, basically visual and uh, confirmation of kids as they move through the course with a communication network that where they can get back to Robert, and we can we can manage just about anything out there. And then lastly, uh, um, we have uh, a volunteer, uh, Chad Johnson, who does, uh, um, who coordinates all the EMS stuff for us at these. Again, so kids, uh, kids racing bikes. You know, uh, sometimes there's injuries, and we've been really, really fortunate for the uh, uh, at, at how small our injuries have been compared, to, especially to uh, other places. And uh, but having a good system there and something we actually know a little bit about was was actually pretty nice. 
So did I miss anything? Yeah, what do you guys do? Oh, oh not much. Yeah, we I just mean, walk I, around. I mean, our, yeah. one of our goals to back up just a little bit was division of labor, right? And not having any of us have to do too much. And that's kind of how we created a lot of these key positions within the organization. And, and um, Matt Ganell from SoCal came out and watched one of our early races and one of his comments was, because he does damn near everything. When we went and watched him, he just running around doing a little bit of everything. And he has some key, key people that help he was him a as cop. well. But uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he was a cop. So, um, so one of his comments was, hey, not only do you have key people in key positions, but they're experts in their respective fields in the business world. And they're doing this for free in your organization. And so we're super fortunate to be able to lean on the fire department for that and the police department for that and the business world for that. And, and again, um, division of labor and then handpicking all these, all these key people. Uh, the, you know, Chris mentioned that we were you know, kind of on race day, but really this, this production starts before the weekend ever starts, you know, and we're all showing up on Friday and getting everything set up. And so the, the goal was kind of, uh, I think Mike and I, or I'm sorry, Chris and I to manage the weekends specifically, not that Mike doesn't have a ton of hands on on the weekends as well, but Mike does all the heavy lifting uh, off season and all of the administrative stuff uh, during the season and before, you know, kind of off season as His well. His most important yeah. job is making sure that the finished gantry is square. Right. And straight. <laughs> yes. yes. Production value. Yeah. So uh, again, marketing background, right? So yeah. if I, oh, I got to yeah. sell those yeah. sponsorships, yeah. we got to yeah. look good in the photos. Yeah, yeah. Trust me, mm-hmm. if I was running this thing, everybody would be shaking their head. They'd all have fun still, but it definitely <laughs> would not look like it looks every weekend. So, um, so I am the race director officially is my position, and um, my job is to somewhat be the face of the race throughout the race weekend. Uh, make sure the course is dialed in, and that's kind of something I do for Epic Rides um, as well. But uh, make sure the course is dialed in. Make sure the markings make sense, uh, and then it's safe. Yeah, make sure it's safe, and then um, and then kind of make sure everybody's uh, everybody's having a good time. You know, so, and sometimes we have to manage rules. Yes, yes, uh, and it seems like more so from the parent standpoint uh, yeah. than than the kids. Um, and that's, Chris talked about the coaches doing a lot of the heavy lifting for this. And that's absolutely true. They're not only managing the kids on the race weekends, but they're managing the families of the kids on those race weekends as well. And we're a big family oriented sport. I think, I don't want to segue too deep into this, but one of the metrics that we don't do a good enough job of tracking is how many parents have become mountain bikers because their kids got involved in our league. So I joke around, I do the coaches meetings every, every race, And um, one of my jokes is, hey, we're a youth development organization, but the reality of it is we're a a human development organization because we're we're changing the coaches' lives, we're changing the parents' lives, and we're changing the families' lives because of these uh, folks being able to do what they're doing together. It's not there. There's not a lot of parents that can participate in practices with their kids, and and so all they have to do is is sign on as a coach with us or even a general volunteer. And they can go out and they can uh, help the coaches uh, at practices. Big, big deal, I think, for, for us and the way our organization has grown. And I can speak uh, very personally to that because my girls did race in the league. So, um, yeah. Big yeah. Deal. Uh, one of the things is culture has been really important to us is the establishment of our culture and what that means and, and, uh, 
and even when things are challenging or difficult is staying true to that culture and, and the values and, and John will call it our tribe. And, and, uh, um, uh, that's one of the things that I'm actually more proud of, uh, about this because we do, you know, there's, there's outliers and everything, but the coaches and the families and the students have done a great job of buying into that and, and, and passing that on. What do you think? And and definitely, I mean, we started the culture. I mean, and the culture was kind of what we thought it should be. But we always have a discussion with the coaches and the families about, you know, this is this is not mine or John's or Chris's. This is ours. And so we are responsible for it. So if we don't like something about it, we need to do something about it. Um, And I I think for the most part, people have stepped up and, um, uh, you know, taken ownership for what uh, collectively is created here. And I think one thing that's really unique about, uh, you know, interscholastic sports, much like college sports versus pros, it's always turning over. So you don't, I mean, the, the continuity um, is us, but the rest of that shared learning, a lot of it is churning out. And even the coaches, many, even most of our coaches get involved because they have a kid. And once the kid graduates, they may stick around for a little bit, but they don't, they're not long for this world after their kid's out of it, usually. So that shared learning is always getting pushed forward to the next generation of coaches and kids and families. Um, and so it's really important that, I mean, we've gotten too big. I mean, like, so we've got 1,200 kids, but when you do families and, and coaches and stuff, you know, a race weekend for us is 3,000 people. Um, you know, and the three of us can't tell people how they're supposed to behave. They need to know what we represent. 3,000 people camping uh, for three, um, even four days now uh, on site. Well, it's, it's a great way to create accountability within the tribe, right? Mm-hmm. It's yours. So if, like, you don't like something, then change it. So <laughs> what's your title? Um Sorry, accountability director. Like, no, what do you I, do? I'm race the day? I'm the ops director. So, yeah. if it has anything to do with bringing <laughs> equipment, tools, setup, that kind of stuff, uh, my job is to to manage that stuff and then to get it where it needs to go and then kind of direct the setup of the infield. The course guys go out and work on the course, and then and then the three of us kind of manage on uh, the setup of. Uh, the infield, how it's going to look, how it's going to lay out, and you know, is it safe, and where's everybody going to uh, going to belong uh, in the process? I've been out to a few, and they're they are they're as organized or more organized than a regular mountain bike, um, you know, uh, race day. One of the best compliments we got last year was uh, uh, one of our coaches took a fantastic photo of two kids coming into the finish shoot at uh, um, at Fort Huachuca and uh and it, and it got posted on our social media stuff and uh the the number of comments about that looks like a world cup uh oh, for sure. finish uh was that was pretty cool and some of those kids are fast i was out there I was like Damn, some of these kids are fast well <laughs> so so we'll have the the example of of uh the, the 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 young the gentleman that i talked about earlier um and we just had a a kid who raced with us the first two years uh, at one point, he was in uh, fourth place in the Giro d'Italia. Oh Jesus! Um, in the last week. Wow! And so we've had that level of, of yeah, participation kidding. in our league. And so there were there were three Americans in uh, the Tour of de France this year, and I know at least two of them are uh, uh, were raced in Nike leagues uh, at some point in their career. It's so they. they that we're seeing this that that springboard into the elite level 
where the the World Cup uh, 2018 World Cup uh, our, our world champion, excuse me, mountain biker, uh, she was from the NorCal League, uh, wow. Kate Courtney, and, and so. And How many parents have you had to tell to sit down? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've had to have do that. That's and that's. Honest to goodness, that's the <laughs> lowest part of the whole thing. That every once in a while, folks get out of line, and you gotta remind them, uh, stop. We can't. This we're not gonna behave this way. So it's middle school through high school. Yep. Six through twelve. Okay, six through twelve. How many classes? Like, like, do they race by age? Do they race by by um, by class? Like, how do they do it? Right. So middle school, they just race by their grade. So six, seven, eight, and then we have freshman category a junior varsity two, a junior varsity one, and a varsity. And so from... Boys and girls. Yeah, boys and girls separately. A lot of classes, man. Yeah, and so, and then from freshman, obviously a freshman is a freshman, but um, above that, everything is ability-based. And so you've got to earn your place. Uh, you just don't get there by getting older. Uh, so once you become, after a freshman, you would default into the JV2. The JV1s are faster than the JV2s, and obviously the varsities are the fastest of them all. And it's based on results that they have uh, accomplished both in the league and then uh, if they're new to the league because they might have moved from another state or they just didn't ride their bike before, we can index it against some other events that they may do if there's others of our kids that we can do. So they can petition into the categories. So a freshman kid could essentially race varsity. So funny could. story about that. Uh, yeah. So we – I believe it was our first year, second year? Anyways, this, this – uh, I think it was our first year. Yeah, it was yeah, first year. This yeah. kid who ended up – in the Brandon Giro, McNulty. Yeah, this Giro d'Italia. Uh, he signs up for fre- – his dad signs him up for freshman class, right, because he's a freshman. And um, one of our friends – Yeah, we, we don't know anything yeah, about him. guy that we've raced with for years uh, calls us and says, hey, man, uh, do you know who this kid is? No, we don't know who this kid is. And, and so he explains to us a little bit of his resume. <laughs> and so we call his dad and said, hey, all you have to do is send us a resume, and, and we can upgrade him to JV. Because uh, that was the that was the, the highest jump from freshman at that point, and we read his resume and we're like, okay, this kid needs to be in varsity. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, so he shows up for his first varsity race and, and rides away from the field and puts minutes on the yeah, field. Yeah, like from fifteen go. minutes ahead. Yeah. from go, he's yeah. just an individual time trial. Yeah, off the so uh, and he's been well. We just didn't know uh, uh, he's been well known in the state in the road racing world uh, since he was a little little kid. So uh, Shepherd High School. I don't well, remember where he went. Uh, and he may have even been home. He rode as an yeah. independent with yeah. us, yeah. right? He's, yeah. Who's um, he from Anthem? No. I'll get back to you just like Texas. Give me a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So anyways, and so, but that's not, those aren't the folks that were, they're going to find places to race everywhere. Uh, and our goal is not to make those folks. Yeah, it'd be awesome to identify some of those folks. But our goal is to make, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of, of us, right? Mm-hmm. Thousands of thousands of mountain bike advocates that just enjoy uh, going out and riding their bikes. I mean, we truly are changing folks' lives in the way that you can ride bikes into your 90s, you know? Hell, I mean, it's this is not, uh, you know, no offense to football and stick and ball sports, but this is not a sport that you're just going to get into and do through high school and through college. This is a sport that most of these folks will be doing the rest of their lives. And, uh, and I think that makes a big difference. You know, I think that really is when you're talking about making the difference. Yeah. We're making the difference for these folks for life. Well, I agree with you because that's the only thing my dad and I can still do together now. Like, right. you know, we, yep. still, we still get on a mountain bike together and go do things together. And he's 70, he'll be 75 this year. And, you know, and it's not, 
it's a common ground that, that we'll probably always share until he dies. Yep. You know, so so it's like, you know, where else you can do it? Like, we, he can't get on the wrestling mat with me or like, you know, we can't go into the gym anymore and do stuff like that, but we can do that all the time. And honestly, man, like um, we rode to dinner with a bunch of friends uh, last Sunday that like aren't, like aren't bike riders. I'm like, oh, I, you, like you can ride my single speed, you can ride my mountain bike, I'll, I'll ride my beach cruiser, blah, 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 like whatever. And like, I don't give a shit. You put anybody on a bike, it's there's a smile coming. Absolutely. Like, all the time. Like no matter what age you are, you know, no matter how long it's been. But but yeah, it's 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 uh and it doesn't uh, no and I I will uh, agree with you about mountain biking. It's a lot more technical than like road road biking or, or like road racing. Cuz I tell people all the time that's my draw cuz your mind has to work fast. You have to make split second decisions on a road bike and kind of zone out. Um, but you don't have to be the greatest athlete to be on a mountain bike. Like some of these kids can't throw a football. They have no, you know, um, their, their footwork isn't the best stuff like that, but you can really get on a bike and just hit it as hard as you want to and be okay. Like you, you may not be the fastest, but if, but if you're mentally tough, you can be a pretty decent rider, you know, for nine to five guy. So it's super cool. I do want to go uh, just briefly back to uh, kind of the culture that we had talked about. And I think, Chris and I were fortunate to grow up within the fire department and it's a, you know, it's a, we grew up in a very family oriented fire department oh, yeah. and, um, and there's a, there's a lot to that. Uh, and so, and then we also, all three of us kind of grew up in a world where mountain bike racing started to get overtaken by road racing. And we saw the cultural shift in mountain bike racing, uh, in the early to mid nineties. And we realized, uh, pretty early on in our organization that we didn't want to see that change happening. And so uh, league-wise, when we initially started the league, it was a bunch of kids of uh, parents who mountain biked, right? So I'm our a mountain peers. biker. Yeah, I'm a mountain biker. I'm going to get my kids into this. This is going to be awesome. And it really was. As the league started to grow, we started to see folks coming from the team sports background. And it did change uh, – I don't know. I don't want to say it changed, but but we could see a definite drift in the culture. We had to work harder to keep it for sure. The culture where yep. where it started, right? Yeah. So we saw this drift from the. And I don't want to bash team sports too much, but I'm just not that guy. You know, I, I didn't grow up in that world. So um, we did see this drift, uh, a direction that we didn't want to see it go. And so we had to actively manage that. And, um, and I think the coaches have done a tremendous job at helping us with that. What's the uh, trip? Can you do one well, so, so look, I, I love competition. Be honest. No, I love competition. But, but what we saw was the competitive aspect starting to overwhelm the, uh, the, basically the youth development piece of Yeah, the of character it. part yeah, of it. Yeah, so the, so the focus started to be way too, far, too hardly driven on competition. And we just didn't want to see that, right? I mean, again, we're gonna, the Brandon McNulty's um, are going to be identified, and they're going to go out and do their thing. Our goal is to make everybody uh, have fun on a mountain bike, right? And so we saw that changing. We saw, you know, the varsity kids were, were, were blazing through the packs and, you know, kind of making sure they were, it was known that they're the fast guys. And um, I hate to bash on the boys, but they were really the ones doing it. I mean, my, you know, my girls ran through the varsity class and uh, my biggest, uh, my proudest moments were how they treated the folks that were out For on sure. course. Yeah. Um, it wasn't about whether they landed on the podium. It was really about how they acted at the races and how they acted to the other kids. And so, so we saw that drift uh, to the point where we had to take some of the varsity kids aside and, and you may get a chuckle out of this, but we, we had a meeting with some of the varsity kids and we're like, Hey, everybody looks up to you guys. You know, everybody wants to be you guys. 
and you can't be dicks. Yeah, it was you guys that are being be dicks. Dick. Yeah, that speech. Well, I think that's super important because if you are that good and you are that fast and you are whatever, like you should be super fucking cool. Absolutely. Because like, there's no reason to be a dick. And I think if more or organizations or coaches pulled you aside, like for me wrestling all those years, like you represented the team and you represented your, yourself in the classroom and you act a certain way. If you don't, you are going to get fucking punished when you come into that wrestling room. And I like I commend you guys for doing that because most people are afraid to say something like that. It's like like you don't ever need to be a dick. Like you never lose by being the nice guy ever, yeah, yeah. ever. Uh, yeah, and we're you know we're surrounded by some really really fast folks that help support the league. Chloe Woodruff being one of them. Uh, She's only Olympian, right? Who uh, is super humble and operates from this position of humility, and obviously is incredibly fast. So um, so we're fortunate to have folks that we can point to uh, for the kids and say, hey, look, this is this is how you should be acting. I don't care how fast you are. But, you know, young boys, testosterone, competition, all that stuff plays into it. And so, so we just have to, I think we have to actively manage that. And again, the coaches do a tremendous job at helping with that. But at some point, we have to sometimes step in and go, wait, time out. This is what it's supposed to look like. Were the kids more receptive than the parents uh, for that conversation? Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I really can't answer that. I don't, maybe you guys Honestly, can help with that. Honestly, I didn't necessarily care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Because right. it was about uh, we needed to set a baseline and listen. And, and, and I, 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 I want you to buy in, but you don't have to buy in. As But when you're here, you got to toe the line. Right. You know, and directionally, I mean, I, I've always maintained, I mean, ki- the kids are very malleable. Um, it's If the parents are going to be jackasses, they're, they're really good at creating jackass kids. And so that's where the message really needs to resonate. And, and even if they're not going to be that way um, uh, genuinely, at least they need to be that way when they show up with us. Mm-hmm. And so kind of to that point, you talked about the different classes and, and levels. Uh, we don't have a – so we have a cumulative uh, point system for all the high school classes, and we don't have that for middle school. Because I want you as a middle schooler to be able to come in, drop yep. into a race. Maybe you have soccer for the next race. Have you have fun. baseball for the yeah, next just race. Have fun. Yeah, you just jump in and have fun. your life you can race. I don't want you to be obligated for six year, or seven years of competition, rather, to be chasing points uh, from a cumulative uh, point scale for, you know, basically that's seven years. It's just too much. And there it's probably isn't anything we get more pressure about right now as a league uh, to to include the middle schoolers in that, believe yeah. that or not, they or just want that. Champion. They want that. They want that cumulative points. They want that state champion. And and I and I can speak from a very uh, strong position of of experience on this because my daughter's raced uh, competitively. You know, freshman JV varsity, uh, and their last varsity year, they were done, just tapped out. They were still racing, but they were just yeah. they were just done with competition. And so, and I don't. I never pressured my kids to get into it. They were always exposed to it, but uh, I never pressured them to get into it. I was super fortunate that they, that they did and enjoyed it, but at the, their last year, it was just too much. Yeah, and I so, think parents, they kind of lose sight of that stuff because I'll have people ask, like, hey, like, when should I like, get my kid to wrestle in this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, get them in whatever, dude. I go, but, but up until about high school, it just needs to be about having fun. Right. Like, if you, you'll yep. burn those kids out. Like, I wrestled with guys that their dads were just fucking hard on them all the time, and... And uh, one of them was actually my roommate in college. And by the time he got to college, like, he, he had a scholarship or whatever, but he was fucking done, man. He, he, yep. he could care less about it. It just, be a kid. And I think that's important that you guys actually say that. Like, let's just have fun, ride a bike, like, be cool, be nice, like, help, like, help people out. And I think learning that stuff, because even in our little pajama wrestling, 
academy. Like we take the time to help the others that aren't necessarily up to speed. Cause, cause if, if, the, if you're not bringing up your teammates or like those people around you, like what the fuck are you doing? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like you, you shouldn't be stepping on somebody to get to somewhere else. Like, you know, everybody can win on that, but it's funny that the parents do that. But I think that's a product of like society nowadays. Cause like everything is like, just like, Oh, you gotta be number one in your class for this and that and the other. And in high school and this, and that. I, I think all that pressure that we put on those kids. And like you said, like, you know who the gamers are, like they're going to be good no matter what, like they don't need to start it. Like that kid that you're talking about. If you probably started that kid in eighth grade on a bike, he would probably still be where he's at today. Yeah, for sure. They just have that natural ability that 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 genetically they're gifted and they're going to be able to turn out, you know, great athletes. And some of those kids won't be that way, but it's important to to be a good person before it is to be a fast racer. Well, yeah, because you're not going to be a fast racer your whole life. Oh no, so but it's pretty important to be a good person your whole life, right? So. yeah, so that I just wanted to speak a little bit more to the culture of it and kind of how we're out trying to actively manage that piece of it. Try yeah, to focus I, on human development rather than competition. Yeah, and I don't want to by any stretch say that we, uh, um, uh, you know, we're suffering with any of this stuff. We ha- we have to work at it. It has to be super deliberate, and we have to be, uh, you know, very specific about what we're trying to do. But we have a huge number of great people that are participating and and towing the line and 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 helping everybody else, you know, figure out how they're supposed to act in our, in in our midst, right? Um, yeah, I mean they're adults, so I mean <laughs> they may not act like it, but yeah, you yeah, know, you need to, whether you want to or not, you need to talk to them like they're equals. So one of the other things that uh, I'm particularly proud about is the demographic. And uh, we like to say we're truly an international league uh, because um, we have, you know, so we encompass the entire state of Arizona uh, from uh, Nogales in the south. Um, We actually have kids who uh, live in Mexico and go to school in the U.S. and they race uh, on uh, on the team in Nogales. So they race with us. Um, and, uh, our shoot, our biggest team for a long time in the league was out of Sierra Vista, um, you know, uh, which is, you know, not a big, a big city, uh, but, but was our, was our biggest team for a long time and, and, and shoot, they won the state championship two or three times, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, so we go all the way North, uh, uh, to, uh, Flagstaff and, uh, and then over for the last two seasons we've had teams from the Navajo Nation uh, and Hopi Nation uh, yeah. racing with us so um, kids that uh, you know live all over the the, the reservation in the nation that uh, participate on their team and come and race with us and often they've got to drive as far as just about anybody else to get to the races and they're there oh, and we also serve western New Mexico yeah exactly so there's not a New Mexico league so we have people coming from uh, Albuquerque uh, from Gala from Silver coming over to participate yeah silver city they those kids are at every race that team's at our every race and uh with smiles on their face and the, they'll often drive seven hours to show up to to our race and That's then and, yeah and then they'll race on sundays and then they got to pack up and drive seven hours home and they're back at school the next There's day yeah they uh city. we we love having them and they've been with us what four or five years now right uh, five years. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, so yeah. It's it's a it's a cool thing to be able to serve you know the entirety of our state and then uh, and then our our neighbors either international neighbors or our interstate neighbors that uh, um, 
uh, you know, that participate. And it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool cultural thing too, for, to get that many people together because uh, everybody's uh, figuring out how to, how to be a part of uh, this culture. It's, it's a pretty neat deal. So the, yeah, culturally, so uh, you made me think about it when you talked about Silver City having all that travel time. Uh, so we don't do our awards back again, back to the culture yeah. uh, that we're building. We don't do our awards until the entire thing is broken down. And I mean, all the everything, all the, the infield, the entire course, all is the course up. and all that stuff is at the back of the trailer. We don't do our awards till all that has happened. And we so, don't start breakdown until the last racer's done. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah so, big, big yeah. point. So yep. a couple key things that we I think we kind of stole from Matt in SoCal. And that was uh, make sure everybody helps do your breakdown. Uh, and make sure that every kid gets the same exact experience. So nothing is broken down until that last kid rolls across the line. So he gets the same, he or she gets the same experience as the first kid that crossed the line. So everybody gets that same experience. So, so you'll see what's really neat about it is, is everybody's ready to work, man. They're ready to break down the course. So they start lining the course, getting ready to do the, do the teardown because they want to get two awards. Well, what that does the, the side benefit of that is that last kid gets a huge cheering oh, squad yeah, sure. all along the course yeah. from all teams coming in. Yep, yeah. From all teams. And, and so, long. yeah. And so it's, it's awesome to see. It's awesome sure. to hear it. You know, it gives me chills most yeah. of the time. Uh, yeah. Cause that last kid gets this big old, uh, this big old entourage, uh, leading them in or cheering them in to that, to that last line. And then that kid rolls across the line, they connect with their coach or parent and, we go to work and, and Chris kind of coordinates all the teardown, but that teardown is done with an army of folks. Yeah. It takes us hours to put up yeah. and minutes to tear down. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it would be nice if it went up that fast, <laughs> uh, but yeah. It, it, and, and, and again, we, yeah, we stole that from, from Matt in, in SoCal and uh, wouldn't change it at all. It's part of everybody owning it. It's not, they don't just show up to a race that we put up. I mean, we, we on the, we have 18 people, like Chris said, that is our core staff for putting on the events. But we have, uh, on any given weekend, about 150 volunteer positions that people will fill that's anywhere from a two-hour shift to a four-hour shift to help us do this task or that task. And that I think that contributes hugely to the, the culture. That, again, they don't only own the culture. I mean, they own the whole production Absolutely. of it. And granted, it's like any other volunteer organization where probably, uh, you know, 80% of it's the same – or you know, you've got the majority of the people. STP, same 10 people. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly where I started to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, there's that ownership, um, which, again, speaks to m my mantra is always repeatable, scalable, sustainable. And the more people that own it, the more you can do that. One of the other factors that has played into this, too, is our culture is uh, one of our very initial things that we said has to happen is every single venue has camping. So it builds this basically a, a community. Uh, all of us is our community for at least, or typically for Friday and Saturday night of mm -hmm. our events. And so, and that's just now we're actually living the, the pain and misery of that because we're having a hard time finding venues that can actually support that. Oh, Be so many. Because yeah. we have so many people showing and so, up. And people are just really put out that we don't have a spot for them to camp. I'm sure, yeah, for right. sure. And so, uh, and and then oftentimes... Because well, they miss out on all the fun. Totally. Right, and yeah. Well, and there's a big deal. We have teams that, the, that show up and literally, not only is it their first time 
uh, really riding bikes. It's their first time racing. It's their first time camping. It's their first time doing, you know, five different things that, uh, that, and it can, but it, but it bonds them all together and it creates this really cool environment that again, I wouldn't change that at all. And we, we, uh, um, yeah, we're we're just got to keep fighting to find the venues that can that can actually legitimately support us. Well, kind of going back to the to the breakdown thing. One is captive labor. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there for, is something about for, that <laughs> for sure. But like, I'm I'm thinking as John was explaining the last rider coming in, it's like for something they would be like, "Fuck, I'm last." Like, I'm so so stuff like that. It totally takes what could be such a negative thing and turns it into such a positive thing for that kid. Like that, like like that might be. Does the same kid finish last a lot? Uh, the same group, <laughs> the of, time, group, yeah. same group of kids. Yeah, you know, we'll recognize them. Okay, yeah, so, we but, recognize Yeah, them. but that's, I mean, for those kids, that's probably the highlight of their week, their year, their school year. Like, you guys are doing a tremendous job with just, like, helping those kids be happy all the damn time. Like, because like, I can't think of any other place to be like, oh, yeah, let's, like, let's cheer on the last person co- coming through. Right. It's like, hurry the fuck up so we can break this thing down. And, like... To the you know to all the vol- to the eighteen volunteers that you guys were talking about, like how nice is, is it for them? They're spent by the end of the weekend. They've probably listened to so and so's parent or just the hours that they put in. It's like you know um, their job's never done. But how nice is it is it for them to not have to spend the next six hours breaking down and they can just like pack up their shit and go home and like be with their family? So super cool. Yeah, and so let me uh, I'll, let me speak to them just for a second because uh, um, or about them. Uh, so they are not only are they uh, the, the workers and the, and the and the folks, but they're they they fit into the culture and they fit into the organization. And the highlight for me is Saturday nights after all the pre rides done or all the middle school racing's done, and we sit down and we eat and as a group and kind of have a big team dinner on Saturday nights and uh, and we have a really really good time and it's it's just nice. Everybody's everybody's well connected. Everybody is uh, they're good people, and it's just a group of folks you want to hang out with. And uh, you know, the only person we really hasn't haven't talked about is the um, the, the chill zone. Uh, we probably should mention Lisa simply because. Uh, so w- one of the things that Pivot uh, started, um, and it was really because of uh, Lisa, um, uh, who 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 is their liaison to uh, to us and the Utah League. Um, and she developed, they wanted to figure out how they were going to do their engagement at our races. And she, she came up with the idea of the pivot chill zone. So the pivot chill zone gets set up at every single one of our races. She shows up with a bunch of easy ups and she's got it now to where she shows up with, I don't know, 20 bean bags, all kinds of chairs. And she puts out this giant spread of, of food and it's kids only. And so when they're done racing, they go over and they hang out with the chill zone and it's kids, no parents, no coaches, no nothing. And they get to hang out, do their thing. And, and, uh, she feeds them and, uh, and, and she goes from laughing to crying to laughing to crying just the, the whole time, just because she's so emotionally involved in it. And that, and, and she's become a really important part of our league. And, uh, I think I, I know she's an important part for pivot, uh, in, in our league, but, uh, you know, I, I know that she also means a lot to us as a league and the kids. So it's I, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned her, give her give her a shout out because she's pretty fantastic, and it wouldn't 
our league, our races probably wouldn't be as fun and as cool without that part of the race. And the zone is really cool because not, it's kids only, but it's kids from all the different teams together. <laughs> and so when a kid gets done racing, they just don't go back to their pits. And it's just like, I'm not going back to Desert Vista and hanging out with all my teammates. I'm going to hang out with all, you know, all my peers. Yeah. And so it's really cool because you got the, the, the people from Phoenix and Flag and, and Prescott and, you know, all over the state and wherever. New Mexico, they're all hanging out together. And so they're making friends across the state, making sure. these relationships that, you know, some of them might be lifelong relationships they're meeting through this. So it's, I mean, it's, it's really cool. It's not just going back and hunkering down with my team and how did we do. And for us, it's a place to go find red vines. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kids only except for us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Or the creepy old dudes in there. And she will be crying uh, while listening to this, I guarantee it. Yeah. What, what's her role in Pivot? Um, she was the sponsorship uh, liaison for all the yeah, athletes. Athlete liaison. Yeah, and now I think she just does our stuff. Uh, I'm not. She sure. She does us, and I think one other thing, but I'm not sure how much. Okay. Wow, what a cool job. She. Uh, so. Uh, so she was present at that our original pitch meeting with uh, with Chris, and then Dustin, uh, um, who worked for Pivot at that time, who is now one of our uh, coach advocates. Uh, in the league, so he got to see that very first meeting, and now he's actually helps our our coaches in Northern Arizona. He's one of our eighteen. Yeah, Mike talked about the the kind of the culture of that pivot chill zone and how we've got kids from all the different uh, if, all the different teams hanging out together. Um, I think our last race of the season is typically that it's that's my favorite day of the season, and it's not because we're going to be done working our asses off every five you know or for five weeks. But uh, because that's when everybody tends to get together. They kind of have their end-of-year party for their respective teams. So that Saturday night uh, at camp, and our camp is enormous. Uh, It's just huge. It takes over all these different parks. Uh, That Saturday night, you've got all the kids kind of mingling and all the different teams, all the friends that they've made throughout the year. So we we tend to if we get the if we get the energy to do it after Saturday, uh, we'll try to walk around just kind of poke our heads in on some of the teams and just kind of see all that interaction. It's it's that's uh, for me it's it's kind of my favorite time of the season again just to kind of see how everybody is is intermixing and uh, kind of how they've built all these friendships throughout the season. So that's a it's just a super fun part of the season for me is kind of that last weekend that last Saturday night. Yeah, like one of our races is uh, is on an active army base. We have uh, our typically our third race of the season is at Fort Huachuca, and it just so happens that uh, Fort Huachuca, uh, 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 many people who live in Sierra Vista uh, work at Fort Huachuca, either as soldiers or, or contractors or, or whatever, and uh, so we have a huge um, uh, level of participation in the in the Buena team, which is the school down in Sierra Vista. And, uh, and we lucked out with having the Garrison Commanders kids uh, who raced, uh, you know, early on. And so now we have this long-term uh, kind of agreement with them to hold our, uh, our events on there. And it's, it's just when we go down there, man, that, that base, that community, that team, that they turn out for us so hugely. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I don't know how big Sierra Vista is, but I know it's a lot bigger on our race weekends. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. So, yeah, so I, I don't, uh, I think we've kind of covered most of everything, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you guys, you know, kind of throw out some, some closing thoughts. Is there anything, uh, you know, we, we didn't get to talk about? Got to talk about money. 
first before oh, <laughs> we get there. So talked about this thing for that long. Like, how do people donate? How can they help? Like, that's a great question. Setting you up, Mike. <laughs> setting you up. You. Okay. <laughs> uh, our website, ArizonaMTB.org. So you can go there. Uh, you can donate. We have a, off of the, the website, there's a, a support pull down and there's a donation. There's a sweepstakes we have going. Uh, any number of ways to get involved. I was going to give the shout out anyway to the website again, ArizonaMTB.org. You know, if somebody wants to start a team at their school, um, if they've got kids that don't have um, a team, any way they want to get involved, we're always looking for people. Whether they want to be a volunteer, start a team, do whatever, just reach out, ask questions. We're here to help people get involved. So, can people donate individually? Yep. Businesses? Yep. 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 You yep. said there's the four levels. Talk about those. How much are those? Uh, well, they start at 2000 for a bronze level okay. per year. And uh, on the high end, it can be as much as they want to spend. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll I don't... facilitate whatever amount. We, right. Yeah, we will. I mean, technically, like, platinum level is $18,000 a year. But there's people like Pivot that do so much more for us um, through the loaner bikes and everything else. And the more somebody wants to get involved, the more we can do something um, tailored to what do they want to get out of it in addition to how it's good for us. Because ultimately, I mean, uh, and not to get too off on a tangent on this, but it, we want more than a donation. We want a partnership. So it needs to work for them as well. Um, so, how, you know, like Pivot's a great example. How can we help you with the engagement and create customers that, you know, they're, they're 15 today, but they're going to be riding a bike when they're 65, and wouldn't it yep. be cool if it's still a Pivot? So, you know, take that to any other, whether it's an insurance company or whatever else, we, you know, how can we help build more relationships? Do certain teams need more financial help than others, and is there a way to help those teams, like, like um um, Ardell's and and, uh, and Betsy's team, like like, how's that money given to those versus not? Can they donate directly to those teams? They can. It depends on the or on the teams because whether they're um, whether they have their own legal structure or not, whether they're five hundred one c three or whether they're affiliated with the school or whatever. So there's a number of things that again you. Through our website, you can find out if there's a team, and you can contact them directly. We've got contact information. Okay. Um, the league itself, we have a scholarship fund that we will help any kid uh, on any team um, if they're in financial need to help remove the financial barriers for them to get involved. Um, and to answer your question, I mean, yeah, you can kind of you can imagine in your head where there's areas of yeah, tougher sure. economic value or, or situations where we can provide more value. Uh, and so our money tends to go more to those places versus the other. But you'd also be surprised where there's um, kids that go to schools that you'd be really surprised that the families don't have any money and and you know we're happy to give them a bike. Do you guys sell apparel like on the website, jerseys, t-shirts, uh, hats, anything like that? Uh, we don't have merchandise. Our, okay. our our online store is currently not open. Okay, not yet, not yeah. yet. All right, well, yeah. That's one of the things we do on race weekends, uh, and we do sell a tremendous amount of it. Yeah. Again, the parents are super excited. So yeah, typically we we sell like more than we can stock on the races. Um, and then this COVID year has kind of taken the wind out of our sale, which is why we didn't have an online store because we were like already selling more than we can keep on the shelves. So we'll at least deal with the people that want to spend the time seeing us right. and take care of them first. This year, honestly, I wish we we had an online store, but um, uh, we blew through stuff so quickly there. And then the FOMA tickets doing other stuff that wasn't necessarily getting more kids on bikes. And so, you know, if you try and do everything, you're going to do a lot of stuff not very well. Besides, Mike wants, he's really good at the merchandise side because he leaves them wanting something new. And we always have something new and interesting that people, I need to have that. And so we, we, we keep them, uh, we keep the uh, supply and demand on the, in, in, in the right balance. So we don't 
pays to have a marketing guy running things, right? Yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, the financial part of it it, it matters, and and that is the the nice part of this is uh, um, we all have we all have our skills that we brought to this deal, and and we, we're it's pretty nice to be in a situation where. Um, you know, we absolutely need sponsorship and we, uh, you know, we, we need the support of businesses and individual donors, but we've put ourselves in a position to where we, we can maximize that, those things that get donated by directly impacting the fees for the kids and keeping it as low as possible and and being able to get it directly into their hands, which is a, a big deal, which I don't know that a lot of other sports are able to do that. Right. And through those donations, I mean, that gives us the, the resources to be more, uh, more actively engaged with, you know, Navajo Nation or Casa Grande or other places like that, that, um, you know, if, if they were less to fend for themselves, they wouldn't, they'd have a harder, harder time. Yeah, without a doubt. Maybe speak to the sweepstakes briefly, Mike. Sweepstakes yeah. on the website. Yes, we're currently through, the drawing is on November 22nd, and tickets are 1 for 10 or 12 for $100. Uh, you can purchase them online through our website, and uh, we are... What, what is it? It's a Mach 4 SL? Yeah, it's a Mach 4 SL. It yeah. yeah. It's a badass rig. I think it's a uh, retails for 6400 bucks. So half the money goes to the league. Half the money goes to a team. So you can pick a team. So if you went to Cactus Shadows High School, you can designate where you want the money to go to so that we're splitting the money with the teams to help them be a little bit more self-supporting. I'll take 12. Nice. Yeah, so this speaks to kind of what you were saying about how do you support specific teams. You can do it through this sweepstakes. If you have a team that you have a passion for, you know, your old school or something like that, you can certainly do that. Awesome. Yeah, and a lot of times it is easier. um, Well, maybe it's easier for me. But to to go to the teams, because a lot of folks will say, I've got this old bike or I've got these old cycling gear. Can I just give it to you? And we're actually, we're not like a Goodwill distribution center for all your lightly used reusable stuff. Yeah. Um, we just don't have the connection point to make it happen. Yeah, we don't. And it's like, yeah, I pack up my garage and come over every third Sunday of the month. Uh, it doesn't work out that well. Garage and- yeah, the teams. Right. Go, go to the teams. Yeah. yeah. So to that point, and I don't want to uh, drag this out too far, but how many teams do we have? Yeah, now? what uh, we should talk about exactly what our demographics are. Yes. Okay, so we have this year 74 teams. We represent, uh, I think, 194, 196 schools. Some are, are a school-specific. Others are composite that are cobbled together from three kids here, four kids there, whatever. And then you have other kids that just ride independently because they are uh, they're in, I don't know, some... Well, I don't say put... Well, put on Phil. There's no team, and there's just a kid that rides by him or herself. Um, we have 21.8% of our uh, riders are girls. Uh, 26.4% of our coaches are female. So we're, we're working on that gender part of it. Uh, we have seven teams that are, are have some affiliation with the tribal. So, again, trying to get more of a, a, a cross-composition there. Of ultimately, again, we want to be a reflection of the community and not just a bunch of white guys. Yeah, we... So... Uh, attracting women to the sport and women to our organization and girls racing and women coaches has always been a really, uh, it's actually been one of our stronger shoots and we've actually been in the, the, the higher, you know, comparative to other leagues. We've, our percentages have always been pretty high, if not the highest at at some points. And, uh, but it's a really, really interesting process that we've learned is every time you attract uh, more girls to this sport and more girls to anything, uh, more boys show up. So it really, the, the percentages actually never really change. We just get more people in general. Yeah. 
strange how that works. Yeah. So. Well, uh, go ahead, Mike. No. All right. So, uh, well, I, I don't know that uh, Brandon, you got anything else you wanna? Nothing. You wanna wrap it up? Yeah. Uh, I just want to say, man, I didn't like I I, I knew about it because obviously I volunteered for minor couple couple events stuff like that. But what you guys are doing is tremendous. Like I haven't heard of an organization that's as well rounded as you guys and what you guys are trying to do. I think at this time in life and the world and society, like uh, needs to be more or- organizations like you guys out there. So those that are listening, if you can donate, do donate. MTB ArizonaMTB.org. ArizonaMTB.org. Go there. Get in the sweepstakes. I'll do. I'll reach out to some more of my knucklehead buddies. I promise to get a thousand thousand bucks in uh, in uh, sweepstakes money out there. So Thank November twenty seventh, twenty second, twenty second. Okay, so, so we we'll get that. And if and, and if I win the bike, I'll raffle it off. <laughs> yeah. Speaking like of that. a couple of years ago, Chloe Woodruff, who John mentioned, uh, raffled off her Olympic bike wow. to benefit the league. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, but it but but again. It is tremendous. I know you guys don't get paid for it. You guys aren't aren't making any money of it, uh, money for it. But you guys are making the difference and actually changing people's lives. So it's so it's super cool to see. And and you know me, I'm big on fitness and to be able to change these kids through fitness and through mental toughness and all that. that that's right, my alley. So I commend you guys. Thank you guys for coming in. Thank you for even doing any of this stuff. And the world needs more people like you. So yeah, thanks, thank fellas. Thank you. You can listen to this podcast anywhere. You can download a podcast. If you want to hear more, talk shit, yell at Chris or me. Uh, don't forget the website's makethedifferenceus.com. My email's b at makethedifferenceus.com. And Chris's is stu, S-T-E-W, at makethedifferenceus.com. So thanks again, guys. We did it. Three mics, four guys. Somehow we did it. Talk to you later.